Who still remembers Pampiro Furpo? Who booked the screw job in Montreal? Who has a good friend named Weasel Dooley? Everyone knows it's corny. Who managed Bobby Eaton and Condry? Who managed Stan Lane and Dr. Tom? Who's sick and tired of Kenny Olivier? Everyone knows it's corny. Who took a shoot, fought off of the scaffolding? Who bled a gusher in a white suit? Who said Ronnie Garvin went up like the challenger? Everyone knows it's corny. It's Jim Cornette's drive through He'll answer questions from you. And he won the pony too. Thank you, fuck you, bye. 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 Hello again, friends. And you are our friends. And welcome back to another edition of Jim Cornette's Drive Through, a parched edition, right here, wherever you may be on this. What's about to be summer? Is it summer today? It's a day, and it's a nice day, and you're with us. I'm the great Brian Last, your host. And here he is. The star of the show, Mr. Jim Cornette. Oh, I'm so parched. I'm so parched. It's a parched. You're the, the parched Brian Last. I was making mockery, ladies and gentlemen, of the fact that Brian Last used the word parched in a sentence when most people would say thirsty, my mouth is dry, something of that nature. But no, you got to be parched. Have you been crawling across the desert on your belly? searching for gold you'll never find, and suddenly the mirage is in front of you and it's Jim Cornette's drive through And here we are. This whole thing's a mirage, isn't it? That's right. Oh, no, now who's you're say, goddamn... Who's to say what's real and what's a dream? It is all but a dream within a dream, as Alan Parsons or Edgar Allan Poe would say. But right now, it ain't the first day of summer. It's June 21st as we're sitting here. As we're beginning this program, by the time we end it, it'll be tomorrow. But you folks will be none the wiser. It'll be seamless. I promise you. When's the first day of summer? The first day of summer, the summer solstice, is June 21st, the middle of summer. This is the longest day of the year. It's they June 21st. From here. What is this news to you? Today's June 21st. Yes. Okay. What do you think I'm saying to you? I said, what's the first day of summer? And you said June 21st, the summer June solstice. June 21st, the summer solstice. So today. Yes. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> All right. Listen here, Abbott. <laughs> anyway, they get shorter from, it goes downhill from here. Believe me, folks. Oh, in more ways me. than one. But nevertheless, yes. <laughs> right now, here in Louisville, Kentucky, just shut up, you prick, just for a second. In Louisville, Kentucky, it, the first day of summer, it's 69 degrees, at least it was on the noon news just shortly ago, and it's just drizzling rain, just pouring rain on the first day of summer. So it, it can only go up from here or down. I don't know. Speaking of drizzling, what do you think of younger wrestlers using the term drizzling shits? Does it feel natural or does it feel like they're copying the older generation? Well, I, I mean, does don't 
normal people say that anymore? Is that a phrase that's gone out of usage in anything other than wrestling circles? I'm not sure I've ever heard it from anyone other than people in wrestling circles. What? Maybe people it's, maybe it's a Southern just, thing. Maybe it's a Southern thing. I, it may be because I've heard people say, well, that's a drizzling shits. Of course, I'm around a lot of wrestling people, but I've heard that for many, many, many years now. Probably longer than you've been alive, young Brian. See, we get more direct and to the point up here. That fucking sucks. Well, no, we got to go. We got to be flowery about it. We've got to have constant comparisons to other things that you wouldn't want to be around or look at. That is a teetotal drizzling shits. Maybe you use words like parched. We've never used that word. Or poached. Unless unless we're sitting out on the poach. If we're sitting out on the poach, then we'd use that word. You ever sit out on your poach, Brian? Uh, well, not on the recently. Front poach or the back poach? <laughs> I don't know what this accent is you're doing, but uh That's what we do down south here. We sit out on the poach. I've been watching something. <laughs> What's that? Well, I'm telling you. You'd let me get to it. I've been watching something on on the YouTube, and it, normally I, I don't have time. If I only had time, as Thunderbolt Patterson would say, I don't have time to sit and go down, as they say, these rabbit holes on the YouTube, because obviously we lead a hectic life. But on we have a successful YouTube channel, so I do have to monitor the existence and going on of YouTube every so often. And every time I get on the thing, you know, it pops up different things that it's suggesting for you to watch. What are the recommendations or whatever the fuck it is, the wide array of things, along with advertisements, blah, blah, blah. But ever since I watched that video, the Hocus Pocus by Focus video over and over when we had that goddamn... That was forever ago. I know, but ever since then, I watched it over and over because I just couldn't get enough of it. And ever since then, all these recommendations pop up on, I get weird ones related to music and rock and roll, right? There is a whole genre of people, different people, different personalities, none that I've ever heard of, but they claim to be personalities, doing reaction videos or videos about their, their adult people they're not necessarily senior citizens. They're not, you know, grandmothers, grandfathers, but they're over the age of 18 adult people that have never heard a classic song before. And then either somebody plays it for them and shoots their reaction or they're doing it themselves because now it's a cottage industry. And they react to this song, They've ne which it, the most ridiculous songs that you would, how in the world has someone existed on the planet and not heard Stairway to Heaven, right? Or, or other... If they're young, I can see how... How the fuck can you avoid that? Because radio doesn't matter anymore. Uh, <laughs> if radio still mattered, it would be unavoidable. But radio is a non-existent entity to the youth and has been for a very long time. To the youths? To the youth of the country. What is the matter with a youth that has never heard Stairway to Heaven, especially... On the headphones, late at night, off of a really nice cassette deck. Maybe they prefer the Who. Well, uh, same the Who's on there too. Who's who? On what? Why? <laughs> no, the Who. They're they're listening to the Who too. 
And they and every time they hear the who, they go, who? I've never heard this who. No, you see, they'll know the who because the who's music has been used for CSI. That's all it takes. What's CSI? It's a very popular series of shows on CBS. Ah, well, then, nevertheless, Jackie Gleason was on CBS. Now, there was a goddamn program. Anyway, so these people are listening to these classic songs they've never heard before in their reality. But there's the one channel in particular, and, of course, once I started watching her, because I'd only had seen snippets of the other just to get the idea of the thing, but, but then this woman fascinated me because she is a classically trained musician. That's her gimmick. And she's not only reacting to these songs, but she's then breaking it down and showing how is it, you know, blah, blah, blah. And here's that this woman, I'm fascinated by her because I can't figure out, number one, she's like probably in her 30s, but the, she's very prim and proper and educated. And the way she's acting, she could be like a 70-year-old matron in a goddamn Margaret Rutherford movie from fucking 1962 or whatever. And see, I'm going to do all the references here that people are going to have to Google. And her voice warbles. Like that, kind of like famed 60s TV character actress Marion Lorne, best known for being Aunt Clara on Bewitched. And she's got the turtleneck sweater on. And you can probably figure if there's a motherfucker alive on this planet that hadn't heard Stairway to Heaven, it's this chick, right? She's got, you know, so I, I'm watching all of these, not only Stairway to Heaven, but these other ones. And it's fucking hilarious that she goes, oh. It seems to me that a feature of all of these rock and roll songs is a guitar solo. <laughs> and I can't tell whether she's, there's a vague accent. I don't know whether it's slightly British or possibly somehow Canadian with a lilt. I don't know what the fuck's going on with this woman. But it's fascinating. You should see some of these things. You should see what I heard. I actually know who you're talking about because I one day, one day, one week, one month, I don't know how long it was, went down the rabbit hole on YouTube. Same thing. I watched one of these and I got tons of them. I went more with the younger people watching or listening to things that they've never heard before and getting their reaction than the classically trained older woman. I just, well, I didn't watch too much of them. I just started with her and then I got fascinated by, you know, the large stick shoved up her ass that she's, oh, you know, oh. When do you go, down the, when do you go down the chiropractor uh, wormhole on YouTube? That's a whole nother thing. Oh, I, you told me about that, where they're cracking and popping people and doing all kinds of disgusting activities to your body. It's great. <laughs> all right, well, you would have... You would have loved some of those massage parlors up in fucking New York back in the uh, 80s, I bet then. They they rubbed you the right way and the wrong way. I don't need the good old massage parlor to get rubbed. Listen, in terms of these reaction videos, how about you? You'd be good for some of these because you don't know anything that came out in the last like 25 years, 30 years. So to get yeah, your but... first reaction to the most popular songs in society for the last generation could be interesting. But then I'd have to listen to them. You and would. from what I've heard, I ain't missed much. And you could put on a wilting voice, like, oh, I don't know what I think about that, just like the woman. Well, you know, I'm not of... sure what I think. I don't I think the only people I've heard in the last 20 years I liked was the Avett brothers. That's it. That's pretty much it. That I can think of off the top of my head or right off the tip of my ass. 
All right. Well, this is your show. No, it's not. It's my show. Yep, it sure is. You got this one, pal. I'm just holding its head. Well, tell me about that head. Well, it's about a head as big as a bucket. <laughs> well, this has been a, the Buckethead Report. It's the start of a, a Ricky Morton limerick, and I won't go any further. We'd get kicked off of all the platforms. That's right. It ends with the Shiite Muslims. But, Jim, what I wanted to uh, start the show with, I guess how we ended the last show, the experience, AEW Collision, the ratings are in. Drum roll, please. Wait a minute. Hold on here. Hold on here. I got to be honest. I've heard the overall total. I've not got the quarters. Do you have the quarters, young Mr. Last? I got the quarters. I got the dimes. I got whatever you need. You got the quarters. You got the ratings and the viewers and the fans. You got the number of people who watched that show on Saturday night and the elite gotta go. We love it to, we love it to watch. That should be the new say. They'll replace Saturday night's all right for fighting. So your singing is not bothersome See? when you're not screeching. It's the screeching. I well, think that's that what I'm doing. It... My that's what I'm doing. My Chris Jericho rock and roll voice because I want to make sure Sebastian Bach knows not to mess with me. I'll I'll slap him naked and hide his clothes. Your Chris Jericho rock and roll voice, really? Yeah, baby, yeah. <laughs> That's right, yeah, baby, yeah. Cause I'm a rock and roller. You certainly are. An AEW Collision debuted June seventeenth on TNT with eight hundred and sixteen thousand viewers, and that is within the range of what they've been doing on their Wednesday night show that's been established for past four years. Now, of course, uh, it is not what the uh, debut of Rampage did with CM Punk. What uh, it was, has it been two years ago now or whatever that was? That was, uh, what, 1.2 million, but that was on a Friday night and they had a lot more buzz going for them then. This, I would think, would be a bigger number than they're going to settle into over the next few weeks because it was the debut and everybody wanted to see what he was going to say. But if they, since they hit, if not a home run with the entire show top to bottom, a home run with giving the people the punk promo that they wanted and a great main event and just a, a better announced team and some interest, uh, then hopefully they will hook a significant number of these to come back over the next few weeks and maybe build something from there. It was a great first episode. I think just about everyone has admitted that. I guess the big thing is going to be, where do you go from here? Week two, week three. The first episode got you at the beginning, kept you to the end. Well, again, this is for me at least. Kept me to the end, left me wanting more, left me wanting to see what's going to be next. But let's go to the actual Well, numbers. I was about to say, let's see, because I've been curious about this as far as did they keep, I didn't know what number they were going to do, but I wondered, would they keep a significant more, a portion of their audience more than the Wednesday night show has been doing, regardless of what the overall total was? So let's see. These were compiled by WrestleNomics. The show opened quarter one, 8 to 8.15 p.m. CM Punk's in-ring live promo and the beginning of Luchasaurus vs. Wardlow, 868,000 viewers. Boom. Also, to note, 
440,000 in the key demo. So over half of the total audience. Yeah. And do we know what their lead in was? Did they get a, a big bang or did they get, you know, no. Joe's discount muffler infomercial? It wasn't the big bang. I don't think. And I, I think I watch it. I want to say it was an Avengers movie or something, but I don't remember. Oh, well, sure. that, that, that might not be shabby. It's not the Avengers you like. What well, was, was Hulk involved? Was Iron Man still in his bulky oh, yellow outfit? Avengers. Okay. Maybe it is the Avengers you like. Okay. Well, segment two, Jim, 8.15, 8.30 PM, the continuation of Luchasaurus versus Wardlow, the title change, and then QT Marshall and Powerhouse Hobbs's promo. Also, it was picture in picture. 828,000 viewers. Okay, I can see that after Punk's interview, to be quite honest, some people may have said, all right, we can take a breath here. They lost 40,000, but they went right from Punk's promo to QT and Hobbs, so that's within, I think, the realm of credibility. Keep going. And again, Wardlow doesn't mean today what Wardlow meant a year ago, so... yeah. Quarter 3, 8.30 to 8.45 p.m. Andrade El Idolo versus Buddy Matthews with Picture in Picture, 773,000 viewers. Yeah, and that 27, 47, 55,000 people, I think those guys paid the price of the way that they have been used or in... Andre's case hadn't been used for what a year now or however long well that's the thing you tune into the show you want to see CM Punk that's the chance after that to hook you Wardlow and Luchasaurus and Christian at least have been on the show they've been used Andrade hasn't been there has it been a year I mean it's been a long time and then Buddy Matthews you only know him for being the guy in the House of Black yeah the guy who loses in the House of Black I guess you could say. <laughs> and that's despite this being a really good match can... Well, and but that's the problem is they have to sacrifice some time early on to build anybody for the future. If if somebody's unknown and that got to be a problem during the Monday Night Wars when it was like the guys that needed to be built couldn't get any time because you didn't want to sacrifice the fucking quarter hour to the other team who's got the nwo or whatever to build somebody they don't know even if you've got big plans for them and they're going to have to do that especially on this program where they're acting like they're trying to do a wrestling show well the match continued in the quarter four 8 45 to 9 p.m andrade versus matthews the post-match angle with house of black scorpio skies promo video tony niece and mark sterling's live promo and miro versus tony niece 835,000 viewers. Boom. And that's 27, 57, 62,000 up. And it wasn't the top of the hour. It was... It was Miro. 845 to 9 o'clock. So, yeah, Miro's got some... And, and do you think in some cases people were hearing that, you know, hey, Andre and Buddy ain't bad, and and they got uh, reattracted? I don't know. I mean, that's a good question because it wasn't it went across that it, it went across two segments and it was a really good match and it was a match I dismissed at first and they got me into it and I really got into it. The question is how many people had the same experience, went on social media or just texted someone said, hey, you got to watch this. I don't know if that would be the determining factor, but who knows? But Miro is back. That's right. 
Segment five, the nine o'clock hour, nine to nine fifteen p.m. A CM Punk video, Tony Storm and Ruby Soho versus Willow Nightingale and Sky Blue with picture in picture, and a Ricky Starks video, eight hundred and thirteen thousand viewers. That's uh, twenty-two thousand down from the last quarter, and that's kind of normal fluctuation. Especially for one of the girls' matches. As someone who has worked in wrestling, dealing with television and programming, wrestling on television, do you see the 9 o'clock hour on Saturday the same way you would see it a primetime 9 o'clock hour during the week? Um, I, I would see the top of the hour the same way anytime. It, it, the, the number of people watching television at a particular point shouldn't affect normal habits if you're watching a program and it's over with you might want to fucking switch around and see what else is on and if you hit the guy oh, let's check in with the fucking wrestling show if you're at all interested so technically that's why that especially as we've always talked about in the wwe they put a big star or a name at the top of the hour to try to hook people oh shit i see somebody i know here it was eh. And so they, you know, they lost 20,000. But, um, you know, you can't, Punk's been in the start. He's going to be at the end. How many times can you, you know, who else did they have on the program at that point that was a, a channel-stopping name? Yeah, maybe after we uh, do the overall numbers, we should talk a little bit more about the key demo because it's an interesting story it tells as well. But quarter six, Jeff Jarrett's video and the acclaimed live promo, 756,000 viewers. God, was, was that a whole fucking quarter? Well, it does say here, too, there was an ad break, I guess, at the beginning and an ad break at the end. So I guess... Jesus, no way. So it started with three and a half minutes of commercials. Then <laughs> there's Jeff's video and the acclaimed promo and in three and a half more minutes of commercials. So yeah, they lost 60,000 people. And a lot of people saw that Jeff video and just thought it was a commercial for some new show on TLC or something. I thought it was actually the Nashville network. Oh, there you go. Well, let's see what happens from here. Son of a gun. They went out of business, didn't they? Segment seven, nine 30 to nine 45 PM FTR and CM Punk versus Jay White, Juice Robinson, and Samoa Joe, with picture-in-picture, 823,000 viewers. There you go. So they got them all back in an extra 10,000. That's a jump of 50, 67,000 people. And finally, segment 8, 9.45 to 10 p.m., the conclusion of FTR and CM Punk versus Jay White, Juice Robinson, and Samoa Joe, 834,000 viewers. And they picked up some more and got another uh, 11,000. So when is the last time uh, on on an AEW production that they actually gained for, not only gained for the main event, but kept gaining for the main event when it ran over two quarters? And looking at this... um, Obviously, Punk's interview and the start of the show and everybody wanted to know what was going to happen was, you know, one of the EVPs going to come out and throw a live hand grenade in the ring. That was the highest quarter of the show. And if you take that out, then besides for quarter four, which was 835,000, 
the last two quarters were the, uh, especially the last one was the best of the program. And again, with all the talk about Turner or Turner, Warner Brothers Discovery, Turner, what's Turner? Or Turner Brothers. Or TNT wanting CM Punk for this show. TNT makes money on the show by selling advertising on the show. They want to hit that key demo. Let's talk about that number. It's very interesting here. Okay. Because normally I don't give a fuck about these people because they're young and I don't like them. Well, it says something here. I, I actually find this very interesting. Show opens with 440, as we mentioned before. Goes to 416. Segment 3, 390, it bottoms out. Segment 4, 441. Segment 5, 9 o'clock hour, 421. Segment 6, 416. The final two segments, the main event match, 468 and 467. So well over half, uh, and I never pay attention, honestly, to the key demo just because it's so Uncle Davish. But is that on Wednesday nights, is the key demo as high a percentage of the overall total audience as this program? Or was this an anomaly? Or did it just blow them out of the water? Well, where, where, where do we stand there? Did you write down any of this? Because I'll go to the dining Yes, I did. Of right. course I did. Hold on. Hold on. I don't know what you I'm a guy. I'm the son of a newspaper man. I'm taking notes all over the place. <laughs> I'm, I'm writing every time a car passes me, I write their license plate down. Well, for instance, AEW Dynamite this past week opened 918 and 415 for Adam Cole versus MJF. Okay. Closed Elite versus Blackpool match 699 and 325. Jesus. So 325 was lower than any quarter of collision in the key demo by it was actually uh 65,000 lower than the lowest point. And uh, hold on here. You would think the opposite, was, though, wouldn't you? I mean, it was 143 below the highest point. You would think the young wrestling fans are just going to want to watch the silly wrestling people like the Bucks and the Elite and Moxley. No, I think that's only for the older virgins. Maybe the young people are the ones that don't want to watch people play tough guy and act silly. They actually want to watch some guys who are tough guys who aren't aren't acting silly. But the, okay, so point is... And by the way, as of today, the Punk Returns and Has Plenty to Say video, WrestleNomics compiled some YouTube stats, 1,400,000 views. Jesus. And he had something to say. What I was going to say was collision... Started with 868,000 and 440, or a little over 50%, were the key demo. And they ended with 834,000 and 467, which now is going on 60%, is it not? Or at least high 50s was the fucking key demo. Whereas if you're talking about dynamite, as you just were, it was at the lowest point, uh, 320, 650, less than 50%. And at the highest point, like 40%. So that just contradicts that all the kiddies love the, the buckaroos, doesn't it? But like I said, with these numbers, again. And this is Saturday night where all these yeah. people are supposed to be going out doing drugs and getting pussy. 
That's apparently the story I'm hearing. Oh, nobody stays home anymore on Saturday nights. They're all going out and partying and being with friends and getting fucking their taint tickled. Drugs and pussy, as you put it. Drugs and alcohol and sex and sin. They all ought to burn in hell and go home and watch fucking dynamite instead of collision. That ought to be their punishment. But yeah, the young people <laughs> kind of like the wrestling show, seems like. Even on Saturday night, they had to stay up late, but they didn't have to watch Kenny or masturbate. Well, the story's now going to be, like we said, this is the first week. There's no trend line. We don't know what it's going to be as a standard going forward week two. What are they going to do? And, and now we're going to see what there is as a Saturday audience. And it's going to be very interesting now because it almost becomes an in-house battle. Which show is going to do better, Wednesday and Saturday? It's not even about them versus Raw or SmackDown. It's now going to be Saturday versus Wednesday. Well, and the good thing is we know that with Punk on it, obviously it will not turn into another rampage. He made the debut and then you know, quickly migrated over, and then Rampage became the island of misfit toys. In this case, they honestly ought to give Rampage over to the Collision crew also and let them use it as a setup show on Friday night and a jumping-off point for what you're going to see on Saturday and let, you know, the the flavor of the that program carry over to Collision, maybe switch the announce teams and keep Tony as far away from any of the meetings as possible. So he doesn't know what's well, going to happen until he sees it. That's not going to happen. That's the problem. Well, I'm, but anyway, that rampage could be a magazine slash package show with highlights and comments and personality pieces that could lead to Saturday night's big fucking fighting where they get a little action in. You know, speaking of rabbit holes on YouTube, after we talked about that Sky Blue interview, I went down a rabbit hole of some of these RJ City Hey EW shows. And I got to admit, I love them. They're great. They're funny. I really like them. And it got me thinking, again, not, maybe not this exactly. Although this may be the best example of the true personalities of a lot of these people. But do you think in the modern day of what wrestling on TV is, and it's to the point where shows like this are talking about ratings, so it's all about ratings. Could a show do a two and a half minute personality profile type segment, whether it's a RJ City interview that brings out the true personality or, I mean, Les Thatcher did personality profile famously in Southeastern. I don't know if that exact format would fit. Again, it's a 2023 wrestling show. Can you break away from the show and do something like that, you think? Yes, because it's the same concept as the sit-down interviews that JR did with Mankind that made Mick Foley a star because he sold Vince on him, and everybody remembers him to this day, but it's what sold Vince on Mick. It doesn't have to be a goddamn... Everybody wants to do a fucking talk show. These goddamn talk shows with fucking ferns and the potted plants and the cushy chairs and the fuck of whatever the fuck... And all of the then nobody takes it seriously to begin with. But if you if you cut away from a basketball game in between in, in, at halftime, or in case of a goddamn game stoppage because somebody's got a concussion or whatever the fuck, and you go to two minutes of a sportscaster interviewing an interesting guy with some B-roll of the shit that he's talking about. 
and people are interested in any way in what he's got to say, they're not going to fucking tank on the rest of the program just because you popped in and told them a little about this guy for three minutes. That's the thing is, it, it, nobody knows who these fucking people are and why they should give a shit about them. Nobody, the heels aren't allowed to, except for the main event guys that have 20 minute interviews. And I'm talking in AEW, everything's scripted over the other place, but somebody needs to, the heels need to trash talk somebody and just get themselves over and piss people off. Or the baby faces need to be able to tell people in some respect why they should give a fuck about whether they succeed or turn blue or burst into flames. Yeah. All right, Jim. Well, before we get to, uh, I know we have a lot of reviews and I want to get a lot of questions in, but we have a lot of reviews, so we got to get some stuff going. Let me uh, quickly ask you one question that a lot of people have sent in, and I'm hoping you've seen this. An image going around, Alan Blackstock discovered it on Twitter at Alan underscore cheap shot. He wrote, hang on a moment. There is a Young Bucks costume on Walmart's website. Oh, God. <laughs> and the model looks quite similar to Dave Meltzer. And he's not exaggerating, other than what appears to be uh, two toes on each foot. What? It, looks ex- it looks very much like Dave Meltzer. Have That's you seen this? What, yes, I've seen it. Yes. If people were tweeting it all over the Twitter the other day. And yes, he does look like he has cloven hoofs. I don't know if that's somehow the... Maybe I was just the edge of the catalog or something. I don't know. But otherwise, yes, it looks slightly thinner in the face, but maybe it's just because he's so damn happy to be in that costume. But it's a Young Bucks Halloween costume. And it is clearly, whether it's Uncle Dave or not... (laughs) a 60-something-year-old white man wearing it, which is just completely inappropriate on any level. And he looks like Dave. And then he looks like Dave Meltzer. Did they try to find a model for the Young Bucks outfit that looked like Dave Meltzer? I don't know what... (laughs) I'm wondering if somebody's ribbing him, or I'm wondering, did they somehow Photoshop this? Why would you... No adult male of that age, even if he was a catalog model or a male escort or a gigolo or whatever the fuck you need to be to to pose for Halloween costumes for advertisements online would nobody would put that costume on and stand there with that giant grin and is it just my imagination because of who it looks like or am I seeing his tongue even hanging out a little bit and he's That's your he's, imagination because of who it is. Okay, it's the giant grin and the arms outstretched with all the buckaroo fringe hanging down. And no man of that age and that wasn't being held at gunpoint would look that jubilant wearing that ridiculous outfit and having pictures taken. Was this somehow, was this a community service deal that he struck? Okay, well, you won't go to jail. Just stand there and wear this while we take pictures of you. I can't get past the uh, talons or whatever's happening on the feet there, the hooves, as you put it. Oh, what? Can you explain that? Was, no. was, was that somehow cut off in in the printing? or It it, it almost looks like hands upside down, like making a, like a pinching motion. I can't tell what it is. Hands across the water. You like wings? 
I do like wings, but actually I'm I'm on the boneless now more often because I don't trust my front tooth these days. Boneless wings. Might, is that when Denny left out. the band? Uh, yes, that oh. was boneless wings. Okay. But back to the cloven hooves of Dave Meltzer. <laughs> <laughs> See, there's English words that have never been put together in that order before. I have done something that's never been done on earth with, a, with six billion people on it. But back to the cloven hooves of Dave Meltzer. Write it down, folks. So why does this motherfucker look this way? And what can we do about it? Who can we complain to about this? That should be on a registry somewhere. You're appealing to children for this childish play wrestling Halloween costume. And you've got this perverted looking cloven hooved man <laughs> trying to sell him this outfit. What parent would see that? And go, oh, I want my kid to look like that. That's the question. Who is the audience that what? they yes. think is going to buy this? Outfit, it's not even people in their 30s or 40s. This is a late 50s, early 60s-year-old man in this photo. Could, I mean, even the, the fans of the Buckaroos, the, the, the Buckaroos out there in the Buckaroo universe, would do they want to dress up like these fucking cloven-hoofed pricks? Or do they just like to clap at their silly wrestling? Is there, is there an adult audience for young bucks Halloween costumes. You know, looking at it now, the fringes look kind of cool when you hold your arms up. They must be a pain in the ass when your arms are down. Oh, they're heavy as shit. You gotta think. Yeah, like hitting your hands. Yeah, slapping around. You yeah. get tied up and tangled up. It's it's hell oh, no. when they <laughs> when they wear them around the house. It's hell on the fucking bric-a-brac on the various shelves and well, end tables and everything. Every time they fucking point or just turn around, they're knocking shit off. Well, that's why they use their hooves to catch the stuff that they knock off to put it back on the table. Oh, that is handy to be hooved. Well, not handy, it, it, hooved. It, be, it behooves you to be hooved. That's right. Well, I think we've, uh, this has been Reggie's Corner yeah. on the show. <laughs> and, we're, and we're so happy there. All righty then. <laughs> but it's your program. It is. Let's get something out of the way. You want to go long or short? Hey, now there. Well, I guess we got to cover Raw first. I guess you know, just to be chronological about the thing. Well, because it 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 ain't gonna take long. Well, let's go to the long of it. Monday Night Raw this week from wherever Cleveland on June nineteenth. The mistake on the lake. We uh we almost swore this program off, and what we are going to do is is very briefly skip through most everything except for a couple of. Well, you can't say highlights, but medium lights. But do you like, they, they're listening at least. You know they're listening. We know they're listening because we were talking about how boring the program is. So immediately Seth Franklin Rollins heads to the ring for a live promo. And before he even gets a chance to speak while he's still exultifying in the cheers and adulation of the adoring throngs, here comes Finn Balor and just beats a teetotal dog shit out of him and chucks him out on the floor and beats him all over ringside until the agents and the referees pull him off of him and then he gives him not one but two of the double foot stomps off of various precipices on the floor and leaves him laying there like a goddamn dish rag, broke, busted, and disgusted, dicked by the dangled dong of destiny. So that was the way to open the pro, but, but yet there's more. 
because they went to the break. And when they come back from the break, there's Seth Franklin in the backstage area with people following him. Go, where is he? Where is he? I'll, I'll kill him. I'll kill him a million times. He's Joe Besser on acid, ladies and gentlemen. Google that one, kids. And suddenly, Finn Balor comes from behind and beats the shit out of him again. <laughs> it, just, it just knocks him over all the furniture and just lays waste to him and throws him way out yonder in the pawpaw patch. What did you think all of the, the feckless complete- agents, all those guys <laughs> who they almost look like they could be wrestlers. They're all out there. None of them could do anything to stop this. They almost look like they could be. Re- they 20 years ago, they did look like they could be wrestlers. At one point, Ken Doan, I don't know what he did. He like went down to his knee and he got up. I was fascinated by what he was doing as an agent to try to stop Finn Balor. He looks older than me now. Well, his hair. He was a teenager when I was his mentor and. Don't blame me, folks. He didn't listen. But what is so they've just beat the piss out of Seth here because he's going over to NXT. Well, See, he's getting softened up. I had two thoughts watching this. Wow. Wow. One. Wow. No, that wasn't one of them. One of them was, wow, they're trying to get Finn Balor over. I guess it did say, wow. Wow, they're trying to get Finn Balor over a little bit as, a, as being a little bit more than just the upset Judgment Day guy. And two, I hope they don't bring Seth Rollins back later on to do a funny cackling interview, which will take all the importance off this. And uh, yeah, he was back later on. Well, yeah, you, you know, it, he shrugged it off. He was only fucking mutilated and perpetrated and dominated and penetrated and castrated. So, of course, he uh, hot cup of soup and fucking uh, ice pack and he was ready to go. You want to split the audience next time Rollins comes out, have a camera go to the back, and you see Finn Balor just murdering the guy who plays the music. <laughs> shut off the music. Rollins is out there conducting, and the music no, just goes no, off. I, I got it. I got it. He, next time he gets Seth down, he's beating him up. He can strangle him until Seth goes, <laughs> and then Finn can record that, and he can play it in the fuck on the <laughs> in the arena. So over the music, instead of whoa, you hear. I like that. I, I want to see that. It'll be awful, but I want to see that happen now. See, that, that'd be some heat. I'd watch. You got to get some heat. Where's this? As Larry Latham, you say, but where's the heat? Spot the moon dog. Rest in peace. Anyway, so here came the Miz. He was in the ring, and he issued an open challenge. And, of course, I was zipping past this until here came Tommaso Ciampa. Did you see Tommaso back out? I did. Fired up, and the fans seemed to be into him. They remember and, him. That was good to see. Yes. And ripped to shreds again. This fucking guy is a cyborg at this point. And we've talked about him in the past. So many injuries and surgeries, and he trains back and he in ring of honor 10 years ago after big knee surgeries he was turning over the fucking tractor tires and doing all this outrageous shit i need to get i need to get on some of that cyborg shit too what no i mean he this was before he could afford anything that would i could afford it helped him do this i could be shredded can you imagine me just shredded i'd like to see you fucking shredded i'd like yeah, maybe a bowl of coleslaw might be uh Hey. Anyway, no, I'm putting Tommaso over, and he couldn't afford any good shit at that point, and he's still he's just a beast. And at least they debuted him. Of course, everybody, it's Miz's job now, his occupation to not only do a job, but to just be 
demolished, but in his hometown, in in his hometown or any other town, everybody's home. He's from the whole United States because they beat him everywhere. Uh, and Champa beat him up and wore him out on the desk and put him back in the ring and basically uh, Miz stopped him for a second and then Tommaso made a comeback and hit his finish one two three and looks great again. I don't, I don't know what the fuck. Uh, maybe he'll join L.A. Knight in the land of looking great and floating around, but we we'll keep our fingers crossed. Look, um, and they had to finish something up with him and the Miz because again, when he left, he was doing something with the Miz, so it made sense to do this. Yeah, because at least he won't be doing anything more with the Miz. The rumor is they're going to put him with Gargano again as a team. Oh goddamn you! Are you serious or are you trying to ruin my day? I said rumor. I didn't say the fact is. Yeah, yeah. rumor. It's be more like the Lodger, <laughs> the Hitchcock version, even. All right. All right. Um, you know, there's some, there's two people out there in, 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 that are loving this podcast that are as old or as warped as we are. The Judgment Day promo in the entrance way, they did the deal where they booed Dominic. They make a challenge for a six-man tag with Cody and two guys. We'll find out more about that later on. I want to go ahead. They did the Bloodline recap from SmackDown, and we were talking about earlier in this program Ratings on the other side of the street. The Bloodline ratings for SmackDown. Can we mention that here since they did the package? We can bring that up. Yeah. The Bloodline ratings for SmackDown, where the Bloodline, basically, what was what did the episode title was, Will Jay Fall in Line? A Quinn Martin production. The people, and we reviewed this program on what the last show that we did, but the people were so into what the fuck was going to happen that not only was this one of the higher rated programs overall and consistently throughout, but they gained 450,000 people for the last quarter hour just to see Jay make his decision. That's a rampage and a half that they gained from where they already were, which was 2.3 million people. So, uh, <laughs> I am astonished at that one. You know, that's the one thing. I know we're talking about Raw, but you're talking about SmackDown ratings here, but it's even Raw. I mean, look at, listen to the crowd, look at the crowd, see the numbers. Whatever we want to say creatively about WWE right now, and there's always things that could be improved, can't deny how hot the product is right now. And also, um, do you have this? Cause I can't read the small print. I can see the numbers, but I can't read what was in the quarters. But I don't know how deep you want to dive into this. But they didn't vary. They started at 2,431,000. And they didn't vary more than 100, 120,000 people up or down throughout the entire program until gaining 450,000 at the end. So I'm at those numbers, the fluctuation there is normal people taking a shit breaks. There was a consistent number of people watching this program throughout and then a huge spike at the end, which we have not seen for anything since we've been covering these ratings, except for anything involving the bloodline from either company. 
your thoughts. I mean, it's incredible when you look at the numbers. I mean, we talk so much about dynamite and we just did collision, but when you see the numbers and you see the consistency and the overall number and the key demo, there aren't giant jumps. I mean, it went from 2.4 to 2.3 at one point and then jumped right back up to 2.4, but there's a consistency there. And the spike at the end, we've seen it before. I think we've seen it a few other times. Maybe, uh, when Cody was built, well, it was Cody building into the bloodline stuff now that I think about it. But the bloodline's the hottest thing. And it's now just four guys and Heyman. <laughs> and <laughs> it's almost as good as almost as good. I knew where you're going. Six people and a woman. Four guys and Heyman. Four guys and Heyman. <laughs> See, now you make that sound bad. Four wrestlers and Paul Heyman, their advisor. <laughs> Okay, you want to talk about the, uh, oh, shut up. Uh, the uh, the key demo, as they say, they started with 854,000 in the key demo, which is, uh, we were talking earlier, uh, Collision did better than 50% of their audience in the key demo. This is only, uh, this is probably 30, high 30% of the audience, but the WWE has such a wider total audience, but they started at 854 and were then 888, 858, 856, 896, 813, 852. Throughout the whole program, there was barely any fluctuation. And then the last quarter, 991, they gained 140,000 in the key demo. And that ain't hey. The only other note, I guess, you brought up other spikes in the numbers. It's happened also, you know, we've seen a little bit at the beginning when there's something at the start, but at the end with these Roman Reigns segments, you're training your audience to know you can kind of hang with the show. It's going to be a lot of commercials, but make sure you're there at the end. Yeah. And, I mean, that's one of the reasons you get a result like this. But, you know, <laughs> the other folks, uh, our friends at, all friends wrestling, they try to do the same thing, don't they? Hey, you know, we got a big main event or golly gee whiz, our stars are wrestling last and they can't sit through it because it all looks the same and they're not invested personally in only a, a few personalities, the ones that do the numbers, punk, MJF, whatever, the people that can connect with them. Or we can have dream matches with scintillating high spots and cunning stunts. Would you like to move on with uh, Raw, which yes. was more or less half-baked? Let's move on. So Sonya and Chelsea beat Caden and Katana. No. No. Yeah, it was the other way around. Caden and Katana beat Sonya and Chelsea in about two minutes. And then Cody did a brief entranceway promo. They're they're playing with the uh, uh, interview locations apparently in the arena, where he accepted the challenge for the six man tag, and he's got to go find him some partners. And a couple of guys who would have been wonderful partners, uh, Shelton Ale uh, Shelton Alexander, Shelton Benjamin, and Cedric Alexander, were up next against Veer McMahon and Skanky with Ginger Mayhall. Uh, but they beat Shelton and Cedric again in two minutes. And the fuck, Sh Shelton Benjamin, he ought to be, 
if if they can't use him on the roster, he ought to be helping to train some of their next generation or something instead of doing jobs in two minutes. What the fuck? I can't figure that one out. Uh, I'm not even asking you to comment on these things. I know that would be a fruitless task. But tell me what you thought about backstage with Sammy and Owens and Riddle because Owens, once again, is blood pressure. He's on the verge of a breakdown. He's just losing his temper. He's fucking snapping. Do you think, does he need help, some kind of intervention, some treatment, medication? What's going on with Kevin Owens? I don't know why they're doing this with him. It was a thing for a few weeks, and now they're making it that he has these anger issues, and Sammy needs him to deal with it, and whatever entertains them, I guess. And I think he's just kind of doing that because... He don't like it either. So at the 9 o'clock hour, as we mentioned, top of the hour, star power, that's what you need. And this, as we're looking at it, this is probably about the star power they were going to have on this program. Logan Paul is back, and he was in the ring in a spotlight, giving a, a dramatic reading on top of a 15-foot ladder. I like Logan Paul. So I've, you know, and he's good because he's, he's got a personality and he can be an annoying fuck. I'm not sure that he yet fully knows exactly the psychology of how to work the crowd in the right direction because he was both a heel and a baby face at the same time. He would put Cleveland over and then he'd bury the fuck out of it. But then he'd rah-rah again. Did you notice that? I did. I think it was just a collection of good lines that he thought of. He wasn't, he, they all didn't have to fucking be cohesive together. But anyway, he sits on top of this big ass ladder and he, unless I missed it, just declared that he was going to be in the Money in the Bank briefcase match. He's just made this happen. Is that basically what the explanation was? I think so. So all these other motherfuckers had to, win these qualifying matches on TV and get their brains beat out and thrown around and kicked in the face and all this shit to get there. And, and he just called the office and said, Hey, I want to be in it. Sure. Logan. Is he a heel or a baby face? I think he's a heel. Even though it was his hometown, they were still booing him. And he, like you said, he had some baby face kind of lines, but then he's clearly a heel. And by the way, he's an amazing heel. He's great. <laughs> but again, there was some weird, like, hometown lines. I mean, the, but get, then again, they also booed LeBron. So, I mean. Well, yeah, uh, but but they, but he's obviously a heel because he just weaseled his way into this match, you know, in that respect. But so I, but the point is, he, he cut the promo. He's going to be in the match. And then here comes Ricochet. And he's talking to him. And he gets in the ring. But then before he can really tell him off, here comes Shaky Nakamura. And he does the same thing in, in, in the way that he does things. He cut the promo and convulsed at the same time, and then he got cut off by L.A. Knight, who came out to a big reaction, and they chanted his name, and they were with all the catchphrases, but before he can finish, here comes Pablo Escobar. And before he can finish... Here comes Butch from the Brutes. And it not Butch Patrick from the Munsters, but Butch from the Brutes. And they just 
as he blows in the ring, they just all get in a fucking fight. And a big, how many is that now? Wait a minute. We got one, two, three, four, five, six. So we got six. And then they all spill out to the floor and Logan Paul does a big flip dive onto several of them and then rolls back in the ring. And somehow every single human being that was just in this big fight completely disappears and Logan Paul put, sets a ladder up and climbs the ladder and hugs the briefcase and mugs for the camera. And everybody else that was in the middle of a fucking riot had, was never seen again. Is that what you saw? Yeah. LA okay. Knight was really over. I saw that. Super over. <sighs> you know, I'm telling you, on the other side of the ring from the hard camera, there is a some type of trap door it's used in some of the 007 movies or maybe the Wild Wild West. And, and as soon as somebody activates the spring, they go into the pit of alligators. You never see them again. Well, for at least three or four quarter hours. Takes them that long to swim back. So did you watch Matt Riddle versus Kaiser Wilhelm? No. Good. Then they had some scripted interaction in the back with Gunther and Kaiser and Sammy and Kevin, so Kevin could lose his temper even more and jump up and down as looking like a petulant Pugsley from the Adams family, but with hair. And then uh, Shoosh Boy and Fat Otis with Model Girl wrestled the Vikings with Val. And at that point, I made the notation, who is this garbage for? Six-year-olds? What is the audience for? You've got badass guys Vince dressed McMahon. up. All right, I guess I answered that. Or you answered that. Vince but, McMahon, but, who would like grown men acting like children and women joining their faction who were blonde that just act like children against Vikings who are big and bad? That's all Vince. And again, we know that the Vikings were a good tag team before all of this happened. Long ago, before they joined the WWE. And we know that Shoosh Boy was a heck of an athlete in a previous life. And this is completely... And so, I would think that the audience for this is paraplegics because they can't activate the remote. And then we had Rhea Ripley versus Natalia, and I said, okay, I'm going to watch this. Natty can work. Ripley's a goddess. And Rhea jump-started it before the bell, beat her up on the floor, threw her in the ring, hit her finish, and the referees told her to fucking leave the premises. There would be no match. Now, in AEW, that would have happened before they rang the bell to start the match, which is equally wrong. But they couldn't have a match at all because of that. So we didn't see any of that. Did you see the what you did you hear what you didn't see there? No, I watched. I watched Rhea Ripley segments. She's great. You know, I don't want to. Uh, again, I appreciate what Natalia brings to the table, but 
She's been there a long time. I don't want to see a feud with her and Rhea Ripley or anything. Unless I don't want to see if I don't want to see a feud. I want to see five nice minutes that Rhea Ripley gets over at a wrestling match instead of oh gosh we're running long because we had fucking you know the Vikings got horny or something and just cut this completely off with the other shit they're showing us. But I guess my point is I wouldn't want, and I feel bad saying, I wouldn't want Rhea Ripley competitive with Natalia in 2023. You don't have to necessarily, oh, she's big enough that she can fucking knock her down, but it doesn't have to, again, I'm talking from a standpoint of presenting fucking talent, Rhea Ripley and Natalia could have had five minutes belt. Bell, that doesn't mean that either... Rhea has to bump for her like a Super Bowl or that she has to beat Natalia up for five straight minutes without pinning her. It means that you could construct a five-minute match to show Rhea Ripley's talents to give enough to Natalia that she looks like she's not just somebody that wandered in off the street, but show that Rhea is obviously superior because she's the one being pushed now. And not only showcase Rhea's finish in a proper way where she, boom, cover, one, two, three, decisive win, but also Rhea's heel attitude and fucking win at any cost demeanor. It doesn't have, you, they, they, they might have taken six fucking bumps if you did it right. Don't make me cranky. So in the back... Poor old Raquel Rodriguez. Who remember the old time wrestler named Barney the Chest Bernard? He had the big old chest, right? Big barrel chest. Chest Bernard, of course. They ought to make Raquel Rodriguez Raquel the Back Rodriguez. Because they make that poor girl now, they put her in a backless outfit, and every time that the camera is on her, she has to turn her back, wrench her neck around to smile at the same time while she's doing the big fucking lat spread or whatever the fuck it is. But she had a face-off in the back with Rhea Ripley, and old Raquel is an inch or maybe inch and a half taller. So Rhea Ripley might have a potential uh, uh, rival there in terms of her physical dominance. I'm interested in seeing that if they'll make Raquel or let Raquel stop smiling when she's fighting Rhea, I would like to see that. Would you like to see the back versus the goddess? I'm not going to start calling her the back, although you're right. That's all she does. Just look, here it is. <laughs> it was interesting seeing them face off because she's bigger than Rhea. And she, you know, there was like the respect, but she gave her also the smirk, like I'm bigger than you. I do want to see that. I think that could be interesting. And also when people say, well, here it is, they're generally put on some kind of list. So. Anyway, in the back, Sammy and Owens offer their help to Cody, the sixth man for Judgment Day, like we were ever in any doubt. And Owens lost his temper again. If I was Cody, I'd have said, no, I'll take you, Sammy, but your fucking partner looks like he's got a fucking issue. Anyway, then the 10 o'clock hour, to be honest, I... Well, I think at this point, at the third hour, they say, fuck it. We know what's going to happen. Trish Stratus, yes, she's a Hall of Fame name, but Trish versus Raquel, I don't know if I would qualify yet just because Raquel has not been 
used in that position that that might be the, the turn of the hour. But nevertheless, as I said, they know what's going to happen anyway. But in this one, there was a twist because instead of beating Raquel, Trish won, but it was because Zoe interfered on Trish's behalf and Becky came to ringside and kicked the shit out of Zoe and nailed Trish too when she got in the way and Raquel got disqualified because of that interventionary tactic and Raquel was not happy. She turned her back on Becky. And speaking of the back, did you see any of this or do you care or are we moving along? Yeah, I was trying to watch, but then I was also hitting like the 15 seconds ahead thing a bunch, but I was trying to watch. Yeah. It was all right. I mean, the crowd was dead. Uh, uh, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I like Trish okay. as a heel. I think Trish is a good heel, but I don't know. I wasn't really. Uh, it was getting late. 10 o'clock Eastern and Cleveland is Eastern. Just barely, but it's is it? Eastern. Okay, I didn't but know. It is. It's Eastern time, yes. Uh, no, actually, it's it's just barely, just barely southern of the lake, right? Uh, anyway, Braun Breaker was in the back, and he was plugging what's going to happen on the NXT program. I would like to hear him do promos as himself, because I bet you that because he's got all of his other the talents from his father and his uncle physically and visually. And I bet you that if they didn't write shit down and tell him to say it, that he could be a fucking great fucking promo, but we, we may never know, but who knows? How does anybody buy shaky Nakamura as anything other than a, an ancient frail looking Japanese grandfather type? He it literally, he looks like one of the peasants in the village that Bruce Lee used to take up for. That wasn't Japan. Wherever. He could have migrated. The point is, <laughs> what? what the fuck? He, he's wearing the scuba diving outfit to cover up his frail physique and with the spastic movements and facially, he looks old. Old. He looks like his social security number is one. He looks like his his birth certificate was chiseled into granite. Anyway, he was a waiter at the Last Supper. We can. He going. was. A, he served a second course at the Last Supper. Yes. I. The point is, they went a minute, and here came Ricochet to ringside, and they went to the break. And when they came back, Ricochet was sitting there calmly watching. There was no tension at all. But finally, he got involved because Bronson Reed was. Oh, I forgot. Shaky had a match. I was so thrown off by his ghastly appearance. So Shaky and Bronson had the match, and then Ricochet and Shaky collided because Bronson had been taunting him, and then Bronson hit the splash on Shaky one, two, three. And and they're still mad at each other, in case you haven't noticed. Well, here we were, all the way down to the six-man tag. You could have said that on any show this week. And well, exactly. And we're going to analyze this here in this segment on this six-man tag, because especially the one thing that this six-man tag outperformed any of the other programs, six-man tags. Can you guess the one way that was, Brian? More commercials? 
it took longer to get this son of a bitch started than any of the other from the start of the first entrance involving these competitors to the actual belling of the ringing, otherwise known as the ringing of the belling, it was 11 minutes. 11 minutes. Owens and Sammy and Cody against Finney and Priesty and Dami with Mommy. And that would have been okay to build up a, the pageantry of a major event, except they spent that much time between all the breaks and the fucking pageantry getting the thing in the ring, and they had three minutes of a match and went to the break. And what did we say the other night on Collision? At le we, we saw the start of the match, and they went to break, like, what was it, either 11 minutes or 13 minutes in? We were all, Now we're hooked. Now we're invested. Now we want to see what's going to go on. Anyway, when they came back, it was a good match by WWE television standards. There were no surprises in terms of how stunningly brilliant any you know anybody was. They're all pros. Nobody neither shit the bed nor got injured. Uh, Cody got the big final comeback, as he should. In, in the pecking order, Sammy was the, the sympathetic underdog that can hand that tag to Owens, who can lose his temper and run amok and then get cut down so that he can set it up for Cody to come in and kick the final thing into high gear, which they did when they started the false finishes. And the back and forth, boom, boom, boom. The last several minutes, or however many minutes, that was where they really kicked it up. That's the exciting part. And then finally, Zane and Owens hit the kick and the stunner on Dominic. And Cody caught Priest with the crossroads, one, two, three. Big finish that they built to and blew it off, got a big pop. So, but at the same time, this was not, nor was it really designed to be even what a pay-per-view match between these two teams would be if they gave them you know, literally a decent amount of time that they were going to be on the air uninterrupted with no commercials and said, okay, go 22 bell to bell or whatever. But it was a good match for television, especially these days in the WWE. So I think this was the, the, uh, the just right porridge of the three six mans. Collision was way hotter because that was the best six-man tag of, of the three of these and also the best six-man tag team match ever on a probably major TV program uh, in, the, in this modern era, at least in AEW it definitely was. The BBC and the Buckaroos on Dynamite, coincidentally, was possibly the worst six-man tag team match ever on, on a major television program. And... This one was right in the middle. It was a real good TV main event for the WWE. What'd you think? I thought it was really good. I think the Judgment Day are the hottest heels on the brand, to use their terminology. I mean, Imperium are good, but it's Gunther and the guys that lose. Judgment Day are presented differently. You know, that would be a great punk rock band name also. Gunther and the guys that lose. Or just Gunther and the losers. But go ahead. Trademark. But then Cody, it's undeniable how over he is right now. Yeah. The way they reacted to him was incredible. 
And that's one of those things that draws me into a match when you actually get to see it without commercials. The crowd reaction. The crowd were into this. I saw Trish vs. Raquel an hour earlier. The crowd sat there and watched. So it wasn't a dead crowd. They really got up here for the end, and it was a really hot ending. Really good match. And that's the thing is, at that point, you've got to think. they, Whatever time they left their house or work or wherever they came from, to get the doors to the building would open at 7 o'clock because at least it's not with Raw like, you know, AEW where they'll give them an hour of matches before the matches start. There may be, I don't know what they're doing in the buildings these days, there may be a 10-minute dark match before Raw goes on the air to, you know, do the equipment check and balance your audio, blah, blah, blah. That's, but I would imagine nothing more than that. But people have still been in the building since 7, 7.30. It's past 10 o'clock. They're looking for that main event, not only because they want to see it, but also because that's the one they can enjoy because now we get to go home. <laughs> so, yes, they want to cheer with that one. Well, that was WWE Raw. How much more do we have to review these Raws? They they go on I, for so long, and we just talk for so long about it, and... Yeah, I'm mad but, at myself. But here's the thing: we said maybe, maybe we'll start watching NXT. Well, we did uh, watch. Yeah. We did watch one match of NXT, but from the from the process of getting to that match, I don't know that I want to see any more NXT. Did you see what I heard there? I only saw a little bit of the show because I tried to check out what else was going on. There was only one match pulling me in but I saw the open of the show. What did you see in the introductions of the NXT North American Championship match between Frick and Frack? They had Tyler Bate and... Um, oh, God, I don't remember who his opponent uh -huh. was now. But they were there. They were standing there. They didn't really seem to have too much of a problem with each other. The referee, Mustafa Ali, uh, without sleeves, behind them, because no wrestler could respectably be a referee without showing off their arms. And the ring announcer who towered over everyone in the middle right behind them. Well, but also, and here's something that to the, it's, it's subliminal, but how big did any of those individuals look in that shot? How tall, prominent, impressive well, physically? I said the ring announcer looked incredibly yeah. tall and impressive. She towered over everyone. But she was actually the fucking probably same. Not that any of them are goddamn Wilt Chamberlain. But do you know what they've that look that they've got the camera shot for the for the introductions on this program of the championship matches or whatever the fuck? Did you notice how that that was shot and what they were doing? They accentuated the shortness of these people. That's why I told you to look at it because. What they did was not only do they have both guys, Olav, who, what is his name? His Tyler name? Bate. Master, Master Bate. They had him and the other fellow standing side by side like they were on the same team so the camera can see them full on. Some director somehow has thought this is a good idea. And so they look that they have no conflict it's not like the boxing intros or the ufc intros where they're across the ring or across the cage they're standing there like contestants in a fucking game show turned to the camera 
with, uh, as you said, Muhammad Ali's the referee. He's got no sleeves in his referee shirt to, so that his arms can stand out, but he's behind old Tyler. The ring announcer is behind them. And again, the challenger, Tyler Beatty, looked like a 45-year-old homeless bum in a pleather raincoat. And... <laughs> to a 45 at homeless he's in the scraggly beard but what they've done is they've put a handheld cameraman on the, the where the hard camera would normally be looking down from the stands on the camera on the ring so you get the the effect that the camera is somewhat up but it's in the stands so it's looking down and it makes the ring look a little bigger but here what they've done is they've got the handheld guy with the camera on his shoulder standing on the apron of the ring or possibly even on the inside of the ropes. But since he's at least as tall, if not taller than these guys, plus they're using the, the, the layman's terminology, the old wide-angle lens thing, the, the fisheye thing, to the, the effect of that to some extent. So it looks like that the ring is a 10-foot-by-10-foot square ring, and it, everybody in the shot looks 5-foot-2. That was the effect they were... It looked like a Saturday Night Live skit of wrestling because it looked like they were in the little small ring they put in the fucking stage at 30 Rock. That's what the... the it's the way that it was shot. And uh, they did... <laughs> Years ago, when uh, like when WCW took over Crockett and started using the TBS crew, or I've seen this on bigger budget indie shootings or upstart television productions, the handheld cameraman they would have in the corners of the ring, and you're seeing it now in the WWE also on Raw in terms of behind the guys when they're reaching for the tag. But the handheld guy would be up on the apron of the ring shooting over the top rope the action in the ring while the match was going on. And I hate that. Because here's why. When the camera is on the same level, the handheld, right there or even a little bit higher than the action going on in the ring, it diminishes the bumps. The bumps don't look higher, they look lower. The whole, the whole fucking thing is when the handheld guys, while a match is going on, are shooting up from the floor all the bumps, all the slams. Anytime you pick a guy up, it looks bigger, and it looks like they're falling farther. But when the guy's on the apron, the same camera, it diminishes the height of the bumps. So anytime that I had control over a television production, whether it's Smoky Mountain Wrestling, OVW, Ring of Honor, whatever the case, We'd have handheld guys in the ring for the live interviews, but then they would be down on the floor for the actual action in the matches. It told the people not only that it was too dangerous for cameramen with that expensive equipment to be up on the ring, but also it made everything the guys in the, did in the ring look bigger. Does that make any sense? It makes a lot of sense. So I didn't like that. Why do you think and, they did it? Because obviously WWE pioneered in a lot of ways shooting wrestlers so that they look bigger than they are. Shoot from below as they're walking to the ring. That stuff started in the 80s with the expansion. Why do you, and, and with Andre, actually, technically before yes. that, 
Why do you think they chose to do it differently here? Because I think that whoever's directing their show down there might think that it's a cool looking shot. And this whole show is apparently to appeal to the fucking, the, the kids out there. Hello, fellow kids. And it's a cool little shot or whatever. And they got the spotlight and the, the woman ring announcer is gargling Drano trying to sound tough. And, but she's wearing a sequin fucking go-go dress. It looks like Ann Margaret uh, sold it in her garage sale. I don't know what, and the go-go boots, whatever the fuck. Some, somebody doing TV down there likes that shot. If Vince saw it, he might go, why do we have Cowboy Lang wrestling Lord Littlebrook on my television? But anyway, if anybody wants to go back and look, I'm, I'm, I'm free to accept criticism or comments that can be emailed into the program. On, but that's what I saw. And then as I was trying to fast forward to the main event that we were promised, which we'll get to in a second, I skipped past a cat fight between two girls in a ring full of cheerleaders dressed as cheerleaders with megaphones and pom-poms. And what the fuck was that all about? Did you see the men that were in the ring? Yeah, male and female cheerleaders. All of them pom-poming. Well, one of the ones who wasn't dressed like a cheerleader, though, that's William Regal's son that we heard so much about. Oh, Jesus, Mary and Joseph. The one that looks like Moxley, funny enough. The oh, way Moxley used to look. Wait a minute, are you saying there's been some kind of crossbreeding amongst the Regals and the Moxleys? I don't even think it's possible, let alone chronologically possible, no. Well, hopefully. One would hope. But anyway, and, and apparently they've also sent Baron Von Corbin back in here. He's, he's, been, he's been beaten and humiliated by everybody else on the main roster. So we finally got to the main event, which was for the WWE World Heavyweight Championship number three, Seth Franklin Rollins defending against our friend, old badass Braun Breaker. And Braun is a heel now. As, as the folks will recall, we predicted when we started watching NXT, or no, it wasn't, he came in after we had started, but when Braun Breaker came into NXT, we were still watching it. And we predicted that he would be the WWE champion in three to five years. And that was, what, two years ago? And I think we're still looking good. We quit watching him when NXT suffered the the slings and arrows of outrageous conquest and was turned into a goddamn Nickelodeon's fucking slime ball show with the unicorn vomit, and so we haven't been keeping track of him. But apparently, Brian, our little boy is growing up. Did you see the look of him, the state of him? I saw the state of him, the gall of him, as uh, somebody put it. <laughs> No, you know, the only thing I didn't like, and you'll probably disagree with me, but we see so many people, and especially with Wardlow on the other show, wearing all black. I liked him better when he had some colors in his singlet. I know that sometimes with WWE, it's as simple as he's a heel now. He can't wear white or he can't wear festive colors. I don't know what they would say. Yeah. But I don't know. That's the only thing that made him not stand out as much as he used to, is that well, he looks too similar, I think, when he wears just all black. Well, I, and I, I agree with you in concept, in principle, but it didn't bother me here because here's, I don't care right now if he's wearing fucking pink and purple polka dotted ping pong balls around his body, right? Really? It's, you wouldn't it, care? It's, 
Well, it's NXT, and this ain't going to be the fully formed Braun Breaker, but I wanted to see if his work was progressing. I wanted to see if he was still in shape. I would love to see an interview with him where he's actually allowed to cut a promo, as I said, but that may be hoping too much right now rather than being given scripted shit. But no, I, what they did was because he... Remember he had the psychedelic uh, tights on is that psychedelic or is that Paisley? What was that pattern that he had? It, but it was the same kind of thing that his dad used to wear 30 years ago when he got started. That same wild, crazy colored pattern. And that was one of the subtle plays on him being the son of a Steiner baby, even though they weren't revealing it publicly. And then after Rick's transgressions, uh, they, you know, probably won't be. Uh, beating it to death anytime in the near future. But when they switched him heel, apparently in NXT, they took the color away. I can see them say, well, we're going to make that mental adjustment. We'll take the color away from him. So he's more heelish. But this ain't going to be what we see when he's called up. I don't think either. So I'm not bothered by it now is what I'm saying. The point is now that we see him, now he's a heel. Because remember before, he was a green baby face, but he had the tremendous, not only the athletic ability, but the bumping ability of his dad and his uncle. That he could take those fucking bumps and not hurt himself, and he had the explosive power and the way that he could pick you up and move you wherever he wanted you to go. He hasn't lost any of that, but now he's also got heel attitude. He's actually working like a heel. He's got the fucking facials. He's got the physical taunting when he fucking rubs the guy's face to man and he rolls over and he does push-ups next to him so he's progressed it, it I, he still looks incredible but now you can tell he's more comfortable remember we said that there was he wasn't missing many spots he was a prodigy because he had never done that at all in front of people when he was first on NXT television. That was his first time in front of people out of class. He was a prodigy there, but he was still at tentative movements or he might be going too fast for it and he'd get someplace right before he needed to be or, you know, whatever the case. But now he's, he's smoothed up quite a bit. And so I, that's what I wanted to see. I wanted to see was there progression not in not only in terms of smoothness but also in terms of does he have a heel attitude now is he the blank faced baby face that has explosiveness but nothing else or can he be the surly or smart ass fucking heel and honestly it wasn't quite as smooth with seth franklin as I thought it would be but I think that boils down to I I would imagine this is the first time they've worked in public and I don't know how much workout time they have but Seth was obviously leading it as the experienced veteran but at the same time you know with I don't think he fully was experienced enough having not been in the ring with Braun Breaker has a little bit of a unique timing he's there quickly before you fucking know it or he's explosive or it just he covers ground so there was a little part where i think they slowed it down just because seth was trying to feel his rhythm or whatever 
I d he came out with his ribs taped, Seth did, from the attack, assault, um, you know, attempted homicide on Raw with Finn Balor. So that was good that, you know, most people be in traction in an iron lung for six months, but Seth fought through it and taped his ribs. And it, it, did it start taking you out of it when it, right before the introductions when they ooed him for so long it took me out of it because they did it throughout the whole match they Wait, weren't but i mean before he could before they could even do anything we just had to endure the endless beauty shot with him with his eyes closed Ooh. it's so unbearable and my only hope was once the match gets going we'll get a good match the fans cared more about that chant and the singing than they did anything else and that ruined it for me yeah because and you would have thought because that's the fake fans, right? That's the friends and family plan at NXT. They're the same people pretty much every week, either regulars or friends or family, is what we've been told. They don't... Do they sell tickets to the general public, or is it just that nobody really from the general public comes? Oh, I don't know about the modern-day NXT, what they're doing, actually. For some time there, because, you know, they were... During the pandemic, they definitely had, like, friends and family. Well, but no, I'll, also, I'm just talking about, because, I mean, how big is the fucking building, for fuck's sake? They don't have that many people there. So, let's, okay, somebody give us the scoop, and we will read it out. Are tickets on sale to the general public? Does the general public come, whether tickets on sale or not? Is it more of a hometown friends and family audience? Are they, do they know what they're supposed to be acting like? But nevertheless, after this goddamn production they went through, and Braun's entrance, by the way, I didn't mention, the dogs barking and everything, that's fucking great. He looks great. I still say by 2025, he'll have one of the three to five world title belts that they'll be featuring by then. One of the three to five belts, really? Well, two more years. They got three now. <laughs> you know, it's a big company. Their expansion plans. But by the time that they got the entrances and the introductions, and by the way, girl announcer introduced Braun Breaker, no weight, no hometown, just, and the challenger, Braun Breaker. The fuck? But after all of that, it was almost 10 minutes to get the bell rung, and they started hot and went to the break in one minute. I was just... As soon as they came back from the break, Braun Breaker hit a perfect... Standing Frankensteiner on Seth coming off the ropes, and the announcers ignored it. And I don't mean ignored it, but it not calling it the Frankensteiner, ignored them, but didn't even mention the move. They were talking about something else, and they kind of went, ooh, in their voice. And I was, shouldn't that be a feature offensive move of his with a new name that people will pop on not only because it's a cool move, but because they know that it's second generation or whatever the fuck. You would think, yeah. Anyway, Braun Breaker's smooth. He moves well. I wrote, Seth made a comeback and hit three dives in a row, and fans won't stop singing that bullshit. And then... Seth pulls the lid off the announce desk and super kicks Braun Breaker onto the top of the desk and then goes to the top rope of the ring and splashes Braun Breaker off the top rope through that table, flatter than a plate full of piss to the floor they went, 
And the announcer said, and we'll be right back. And they went to the break in five seconds. There were still pieces of the table rolling when they went to the fucking break. And I'm like, where else would you see that? Uh, Seth Rollins and Braun Breaker may be dead, folks. Let's go sell some fucking douche. What? Do, do, they, you, cut, do they cut away when the Indy 500 race car driver fucking crashes into the wall and the car is in flame? The car is burning. We'll be right back after this word from State Farm. I thought of you during the commercials. There was one commercial I'd never seen before for a product called Poof. And the guy Poof. said it like that. Poof. The way Poof. you used to say it on the show. Poof. Broad Breaker's kicking ass out of here. Poof. Poof. So anyway, they finally came back, but thankfully both guys were fine. <laughs> because Seth was making another comeback. And then he missed a big splash off the top. And I... And that why did they have to do that goddamn... Uh, the table spot looked fantastic. Shouldn't have been a break spot. Should be a fucking angle to lead to a pay-per-view match. Right? But anyway, nevertheless, Seth is part of the new generation. So then, anyway, missed the splash off the top, and Braun gets the Steiner recliner. Seth gets a rope break. Did you see the spot where Braun ran nimbly up to the top, just stepped right up to the top rope and Hurricane Ronald Seth off on the fly? And he's got to be two, he's leaned up, but he's got to be 240, right? 245 easily. Oh, I don't know. You think he's that big? I think he's thick. And another classic line of Arn Anderson's muscle weighs more than fat. And he's solid. I, you know, anyway, 230 to 240, but he's, he's moving well. Boom. And then Seth bounced up into bronze press and power slam, which he hit perfectly, got the two count. Big false finish. Seth hit a pedigree and got a two count. Braun Breaker hit a fucking spear that knocked Seth back into fucking Iowa and got a two count. And then... Braun comes off the top, but into a super kick and puts himself right in a perfect spot for the curb stomp. And then Seth doesn't even bother for the cover, goes for another one, which was absolutely called for to not beat the kid in his hometown, you know, just with one finish. Boom, hit a second curb stomp. One, two, three. So they're taking care of Breaker on the finishes also, and they obviously wanted Seth to come down here to see what the kids got. And I, I think, uh, again, you know, I don't know how much longer they want to wait before they bring him up, but geez, with the dreary status of most of the people on the main roster, if they can, I'd love to see what Heyman can do with this guy. I know he's busy with the Island of relevancy, but maybe he could, take a helicopter over to the fucking sandbar of Breaker. Well, that was NXT, and uh, any hopes of us watching it going forward are probably killed with this episode. Dashed to bits, left on the rocks, baby. But we wish everyone good luck. I guess that's the point. In their future endeavors.
Well, Jim, with all these reviews before the listeners get poached or anything, let's move on. Let's get going with the show. But I understand you have a story and you want to tell it. Well, I, I found something. Because, you know, we talked about the big attic insulation project I went through. We had to move a lot of stuff in the vault. Well, I finally had to move a lot of stuff back into the vault, out of the office and clean up because I had a TV crew here again the other day. More on that in the coming weeks. America's Most Wanted? Things. Well, no, no, I, I didn't make the list this week. I politicked for it, but I couldn't make it. But the, I found some things, and one of the things we've talked about lately on the program ticket prices to events today versus what you know they were back in the territory days and we've also played on this program guess the program which we're going to do a little bit of here later on i understand but this is something that kind of relates without relating to both of them tickets and wrestling events i found tickets to a show that i didn't go to but that Christine Jarrett had given me because she was telling us the story about it. And this is one of those things that could only happen in the territories and maybe even then only happen in Tennessee, in, in that territory during that period of time. We've talked about how that, you know, in the days of the 50s, 60s, and especially early 70s, there were no pro sports in Nashville. It was the Grand old Opry and wrestling. And there was a heavy crossover between the country music stars and the wrestlers. They, a lot of them knew each other. We taught Jerry Jarrett used to be next door neighbors to Bobby Bear and lived across old Hickory Lake from Johnny Cash. And, you know, people used to come to the shows, blah, blah, blah. And they'd go to the bars downtown, especially in the fifties and sixties. So anyway, we've also talked about Eddie Marlin. Remember I went down to visit him when, he was ill right before he passed away. Randy Hale set it up for me to come over that day, and we told that story about how Eddie had been around wrestling in Nashville since he was a teenager in the 40s. And he had wrestled and refereed and hauled the ring, but on a small-time basis. But then when Jerry Jarrett started booking and opened up his own towns, Louisville and Evansville, and he saw something in Eddie that he connected with the fans because he was just like them. And by that time, Eddie was past 40. But Eddie Marlin and Tommy Gilbert were the top babyface tag team in the territory in 1973. They were main event and sellouts in Memphis, whatever, because the people loved him. They identified with him. And Tommy Gilbert looked like he was past 40. And Tommy looked like, but he looked like Burt Reynolds past 40. So he had that sex appeal going for him. But anyway, so the thing is, Eddie finally, and then Jerry had him transition into working for him full-time, promoting and running towns, but Eddie was an unlikely top babyface in that he had his big run where he was the star of the territory when he was like almost 45 years old. But we don't talk that much about his brother, Thomas Marlin. And you know, Tommy Marlin was a referee, and you see him in... A lot of the NWA world title matches, Tommy didn't work Memphis, but he would come down to referee the NWA title matches because Thomas was a bit of a babyface glory hound too, right? And he liked to put the suspenders and the bow tie on for the world title matches. <laughs> but here's the thing. Thomas was where Eddie was tall and lanky and had the, the big belly and the buggy whip arms, just like the fans, right? That they, they loved him. Thomas was several inches shorter. 
and squat and thick and had a big old round head and this big mane of silver hair, if you put him in a rhinestone cowboy suit, he would have looked like a country music star. He had that profile and that, that silver hair, right? Rhinestone. And Thomas had not really been involved in the wrestling business to that extent until later on, as Eddie started working more regularly for Jerry, um, then referee Bobby Thomas arrived. They didn't want to tell people that the referee was actually Eddie Marlin, the top babyface's brother, so he worked as Bobby Thomas. But then, eventually, obviously, they got to do the angle. So Bobby Thomas is revealed as Thomas Marlin when the heels jump him and beat him up, and now he would join Eddie every once in a while for tag team matches, and especially when, when Johnny Eagles came in from England and looked just like Eddie Marlin, and they made him Eddie's cousin from London, then they had the three Marlin brothers and six mans, or a three Marlin family, and it was it was just just swell, right? But point of this story is Thomas was also he was only a couple of years younger than Eddie, so he's in the mid seventies. He's in his middle forties, and you know I, I saw I think I saw Thomas wrestle. I wrestled him in nineteen eighty two. The thing about Thomas is he was a stiff motherfucker. Every time he laid his hands on you, it would hurt. His punches were stiff. His broad arms would knock the breath out of you. And what are you going to say? You know, the, this fucking 50-something-year-old man, and he's a referee, but he's beating up all the boys, but he's fucking stouter than they are. Anyway, the reason I tell this story is because Thomas Marlin was not in wrestling full-time. As I say, he would come up on Tuesday nights and referee in Louisville. He'd go to Memphis for the um, you know, the world title matches most of the time. And maybe he, you know, he, he'd be in Lexington once a month or whatever, bigger shows, because his real job, he was a fucking some type of county judge down in Sumner County in Gallatin, Tennessee. And Gallatin, Tennessee is right up just a bit north, northeast of Hendersonville, where all the wrestlers and Jerry Jarrett and all the country music stars back then lived, right? Gallons are a little bit nicer suburb of Hendersonville. So anyway, it, since Thomas Marlin was a county judge up there, he would sometimes go into goddamn work with gig marks on his head and or a black hour or whatever. And he was on TV and the fucking, his cohorts up there would ask him about his wrestling matches and about his wrestling career or whatever. So anyway, the bottom line is, one night, they decide, or one day, it was a Sunday afternoon, they booked a spot show in Gallatin, Tennessee. And again, this is only 30, 30 miles, maybe 35, whatever, from downtown Nashville. So it was a Sunday afternoon spot show at, at the Vol State Gym, the school gym there, and... You know, that was a way for the guys to be on a Sunday afternoon, go pick up a payoff and only be 30 minutes from home. But at this time, this was July 13th, 1979. It was right after, Brian, that Robert Fuller had taken all the guys to territory and gone to goddamn back to Knoxville after the split over there. And Jarrett was left with the 
Lawler, Dundee, the Blonde Bombers, Danny Davis, and, you know, others on the card, right? The Gilberts versus the Waynes. Exactly. And the the father and son tag team of Buddy and Ken Wayne were doing a program with the father and son tag team of Tommy and Eddie Gilbert. And also there was some of the guys that had trained at Buddy Fuller's farm, Dallas Montgomery, those guys on the card. But on this particular day, Buddy and Ken Wayne were not going to wrestle a father and son team, but a brother team. They decided to book Eddie and Thomas Marlin against Buddy and Ken Wayne on this show in Gallatin, which is right down the road for where everybody knows who the fuck the Marlin brothers are, right? So when Thomas Marlin's co-workers heard that they were going to get to see him wrestle just right, right here in town, right down the road, they wanted to get involved. So what they did was they built a wrestling spectacular around this match. And they had the other guys in the territory on the card, too. I don't know if Lawler was there. I, it, the rest of the card is not listed. But Dundee was there. He lived in Hendersonville. And they had a regular card. But all the advertising featured this match because all of the friends of Thomas Marlin got involved. So they had a tag team match with Tommy and Eddie Marlin against Buddy and Ken Wayne. But the special referee of the match was another county judge named Richard Sutton. And the timekeeper of the match was another judge named Bethel Brown. And the ring announcer was a state senator <laughs> named Tommy Cutrer. And the ring maintenance supervisor was the superintendent of roads. The Marlin Brothers bodyguard was the sheriff of Sumner County. <laughs> the Marlin Brothers valet was the registrar of deeds, J.B. Rippey. <laughs> Their manager was the county court clerk, Jimmy England, and the ring physician was another judge named Shelton Hatcher. So the entire administration of this fucking county was involved in this wrestling match at the Vol State Gym on a Sunday afternoon, and you could get in for $4 and see it. And they did like about fucking 800 or 1,000 people for what she was saying, you know, because that's, the spot shows at that point in time would do 500 people anyway, most of the time, unless it was Madisonville, Kentucky or something. But they had every fucking celebrity in this goddamn county at the wrestling matches because one of the judges was wrestling. That may be a unique... <laughs> I know there's there's been politicians involved at various points, but not the whole goddamn roster. Right. So I know what would happen nowadays. Did it happen then? Did Ken Wayne take a bump for every single judge at one point? I think he did. Yes. Because <laughs> he had just started then and he was feeling real froggy. He took the, when I got into business, the, my first year in the business, the most terrifying, we didn't know the word botch back then, but the most terrifying fucked up bump that I ever saw to that point that I thought my God, he's going to, he, we're going to have to call an ambulance. He's dead. He took, when I was managing him and Danny Davis, Danny's back, he hurt his back and he was out. And Ken was filling in some of the matches as a single. And we were in Nashville at the fairgrounds one night and he wanted to take the Harley race bump. He'd been working on it because uh, uh, Ken was only like five foot six, five foot seven, right? And he was like his dad. He had a long legs, but short upper body. 
And he was going to take, you know, where you shoot the guy corner to corner that Triple H has stolen and everybody's stolen from Harley, where you shoot the guy corner to corner and he would go up and over the top rope backwards, feet in the air, and then land on the floor, right? Yeah. Well, Ken had been practicing and did that bump perfectly. It was amazing. Holy shit. I was like, wow, that's, that's cool. That's just swell. But the problem was he forgot where he was because in Nashville, the ring that they used at the fairgrounds back in those days, they kept it at the fairgrounds. They didn't have to haul one in and set it up and take it down, haul it away every night. It just brought it in from the back room. The top rope was the shortest top rope on any ring I've ever been in. I, it was waist high to me. And I literally, that every, my first year in the business, every time I was booked in Nashville, I jumped into the ring over the top rope as a manager because it was, I was so thrilled that I could do it on no other ring, right? Put this fucking low top rope. Well, Ken, as I mentioned, was short and he had perfected this bump to where when they shot him off, as soon as he turned and was going into the turnbuckle, he would push off and jump because then his ass would hit the top turnbuckle and it would start turning him and he could hook his right arm over the top rope and go the rest of the way, right? Or around the top rope, I should say. He jumped on this ring and his ass cleared the top turnbuckle. <laughs> he never turned. He jumped and went backwards over the top rope and hurtled through space and landed in a fucking flat-backed heap out on the goddamn concrete floor. Oh and I said, oh, my God, the people went, oh. And I ran over there to him, and I fucking looked down. I said, are you all right? Are you all right? He's oh, goddamn. <laughs> he said, oh, goddamn. He said, he said, just... Just stall for time. <laughs> just, and I start yelling at the referee so he won't count. And uh, I can't even remember who we were working with. The opponents trying to come and break the count. And Ken's getting up. And he's pushing himself. The, the cops had chairs sitting in the corners of the ring, folding chairs that they would sit in. You know, well, the cop has stood up because Ken's crawled over to him. <laughs> pushed himself up on that guy's chair because all the, he don't want to go to people in the front row. They'll kick him while he's down, right? And he pushed himself back up to his feet and he was shook the fuck up and didn't break anything and didn't and didn't miss any matches, but guy, he got back in. They didn't go too much longer after that. Anyway, that was a story about the old days in, in Tennessee. Do you miss variety in rings at all? I mean, it's fun to talk about, but was it just a pain in the ass? Do you prefer like a standardized ring? Well, yes and no in that in to the question that you posed, do I miss variety? It, 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 the variety could sometimes be, you know, dangerous fucking piece of shit ring or or not. I don't miss that. Um, you do miss some variety and just in terms of some of the rings just had such a sweet bump to them. And sometimes you couldn't even replicate it. You could build it the same way. It was the way the boards broke in. I don't know what the fuck. The way the the, uh, you know, supports had bent just perfectly under many backdrops. And then there were other ones that were stiff, no matter what you did. Or, you know, I didn't like the ones, obviously, with ropes, especially ropes that weren't even wrapped, just ropes. But, uh, you know, overall, 
it's probably better that their standard size these days, mostly in the mainstream organizations, so you're not in a 16-footer one night, 18-footer most of the time, and every once in a while you go to Houston, it's 20 or whatever. Um, I always loved how big the Olympic Auditorium ring looked. Yeah, but you wouldn't have loved working in it. Because think if you, if you shoot a guy off from the fucking middle, it's like running an 18-foot ring. So that's why, the, you know, those matches were not high-spot matches. They were, you know, more the Freddie Blassie type. But no, I don't miss the variety when some of them are about ready to fall down. Well, let's go from you referencing Guess the Program to Guess the Program. Yay! Where I have here a bunch of programs from my personal collection. They are in my hand. I have no foreknowledge of these whatsoever. No, you don't. And we're going to mix it up. I'm going to give you some that uh, you may have to have special rules on. Uh-oh. Uh, so already you're stacking a deck here. Well, Try for, to fuck with me. Well, for instance, we're going to start with this one. And here's what I'm going to say. You do not have to guess. The, the territory will be apparent. You have to okay. guess... The year, I guess, is the only thing to do. Because I don't... Well, you can... How are you going to guess the town? You wouldn't be able oh, to... Oh, goddamn, if you can't te- explain it to me, then how is either either one of us going to know? Yeah, maybe I should skip this one. Let me go to a next oh, one. Oh, for you know, now, now you've left me in suspense. All right. The opening bout. Johnny Rivera versus Akira Maeda. Okay. The second bout. Special Delivery Jones... Versus Charlie Fulton. In our third contest, Tiger Chung Lee versus Jose Gonzalez. Jesus Christ. Our fourth contest, Tony Mr. USA Atlas versus Samoan number two. Following that, we have Greg the Hammer Valentine versus Rocky Johnson. And the final contest, main event, one fall, one hour time limit. Jimmy Superfly Snooker versus Samoan number one. Okay, well, obviously it's a WWF show. And you're that that's why you were trying to say guess the year. And obviously Akira Maeda is the outlier here that makes everybody go, ooh, because when the fuck? Would he ever have been there, correct? I think a lot of people would say, because you're not going to guess what where, the, yeah. why the fuck was Akira Maeda in Sheepshead Bay? Yes, I think they would be saying that. Okay, and you're, you're, in, you're in Sheepshead Bay, uh, New York, right? That's right. Uh, and the year would have to be 1983, wouldn't it? See, there's where I thought you would go. The date, Tuesday, May 15th, 1984. Ah! Sheepshead Bay High School, Brooklyn, New York. So you talk about spot shows. Here's a WWF spot show, Sheepshead Bay. Wow. I would have thought that was 83 just because I would have thought it was 83. But it was 84. So son of a bitch. All right. Well, let's go to this next card here. The opening bout. Mike Sharp versus Rocky Brown. The next bout. Okay, that I've already going to name this. That was uh, East Sheepshead Bay, New York. <laughs> in, no, okay, go ahead. The next bout, Bob Orton versus Johnny Berend. 
Okay. There's All the right. There's the twist. Right? There's the twist. <laughs> We're going with Mike Sharp Sr., but he wasn't a senior then because Junior wasn't around, and we're not going with Bob Orton Jr. because it's Bob Orton Sr. The next bout, Gorilla Cepeda. Oh, good Lord. And Gene Dubuque versus Enrique Torres and Bobo Brazil. And finally, the main event, one hour, two out of three falls. Leo Namalini versus Jesus Ortega. Okay, you give me something to work with there. Um, because with Mike Sharp, it could have been anywhere at any time over the period of his career, but at this era, this is the 1950s, and Mike Sharp is obviously noted for his incredible run with Brother Ben in San Francisco. Bob Orton is Bob Orton Sr., and before Bob Orton Sr. would have probably been a very major name in pro wrestling. Johnny Barrand was obviously a major attraction in the late 50s in not only the Northeast, but uh, he was one of Buddy Rogers's packs, so he would travel around to the various territories with him. Enrique Torres and Bobo Brazil teaming would definitely not let it be anywhere down south. And Leo Namalini, one of the greatest stars in the history of San Francisco, in the main event against Jesus, would that be Jesse the Bull Ortega? Or believe, he would become that? I believe so. We're in San Francisco in the 50s, aren't we? We certainly are. And now we just got to figure out a year, and it would be 56? So close. Ah! Tuesday, January 25th, 1955. 8.30 p.m. at Winterland in the San Winterland Francisco. Winterland Arena. That's right. Bill Graham presents The Grateful Dead. All right. One year. I was one year off on each one of these son of a bitches. The front of the program, West Coast Wrestling News. Leo Namalini, the uncrowned champion of the world, will have his hands full with big Jesus Ortega, 305-pound Stonewall who no one, there's no sentence, no period or comma anywhere yet, <laughs> who no one has been able to bring down to the mat and no one has been able to phase with a drop kick or flying tackle, period. We are wondering if Leo will be able to move the big Mexican with his powerful tackle and block, which no one has been able to take and get up again. Last Tuesday, who wrote this? Last Tuesday, Leo finished off Pico with a tackle that threw the Mexican 12 feet into the air. And on the back of the program is a, because this is a selling point, a picture of Sam Mushnick. And it says, Leo Namalini is hitting faster and harder with his tackle than he ever did before. Therefore, he is getting hotter on the trail of champion Lou Thez. Sam Mushnick, president of NWA, there's no commas, I'm just doing it myself, will be in San Francisco Sunday, January 23rd, when Leo Namalini will speak to him about forcing champion Luthez into meeting him in the near future. Uh, and we know how that worked out. A contested title claim. But uh, let's go to our next program here. 
This is the card from the program. Let's see how well you know this. The opening bout, the Sheep Herders versus Bugsy McGraw and Ricky Santana. Gorgeous Jimmy Garvin versus Rick Steiner. Mm. Mike Rotunda versus Sting. I'm not naming any championships as I name this. Right. Nikita Koloff versus Al Perez. The Midnight Express versus the Fantastics. The Road Warriors versus the Powers of Pain in a steel cage match. Nature Boy Ric Flair versus Steve Dr. Death Williams. And finally, Lights Out Grudge Match. Lex Luger and Dusty Rhodes versus Tully Blanchard and Barry Windham. I left out the managers, not that you wouldn't know who they are. Yeah. Let's see how well you know your stuff. Oh my gosh. Uh, So... We started the angle with the Fantastics in March of 1988, and it ran through July, early August of 1988, so we are within that time period. This looks to me like a Great American Bash card, uh, which would have put it somewhere between well, really, the end of June and the first part of August that year. Because Flair is working with Dr. Death. The sheep herders are on the card. Um, you've got Sting and Steiner. Powers of Pain are on the card. Well, the Powers of Pain are on the card, yes. But I'm talking about the, the guys that were absorbed from the UWF. And with Doc wrestling Flair, one would lead us to believe that that was the old UWF territory. But now the thing is, now that I'm looking at that, all that stuff should have happened in 1987. So the question is, is this a Great American Bash event or a big event in Houston from before where we would work with the Fantastics earlier than our program started. Now you've got me questioning myself. You shouldn't question that. You were going the right way. I was going the right way. You were were more in the year of the right way. I'll put it that way. So it's 1988, but is, is is it a bash card or is it a Houston card? Before we go any further, Houston in 87, Paul Bosch sells to Vince McMahon. He then promotes NWA. True, true. Well, well, coming but, back in 88. Yeah. The question I was going to ask you, what was Houston like? Were they getting big cards from the NWA in 1988? Well, it would have for the bash, even though we weren't drawing there anymore. Or would this have been Dallas? Well, I'll give you the uh, the town and the date. Here we are. Go ahead. Championship Wrestling, St. Louis, Missouri. What? Friday, May 27th, 1988. Good God. Okay. So I don't know what the fuck they were thinking booking Flair with Doc in St. Louis. 
Uh, there were a lot of questionable St. Louis decisions after 1982. Boy, there sure were. <laughs> Let's go to this. Holy shit. I would never have thought that. And that was a way... That was way too big of a card for St. Louis with the business that St. Louis was doing at that point in time. I'll tell you that. This next one is an interesting one here, Jim. The opening bout, Hugh McKenzie versus John Tolos. Wait a minute. Hold on here. I got to get a new piece of paper. So Hugh Tex McKenzie versus John Tolos. Boy, that must have been an exciting match. Ooh. Well, you know, if, you know, I shouldn't say that. If that match took place 20 years later, it may have been the worst match of all time. <laughs> but there was probably all right. Well, T Tolos was was moving around pretty good back then, but Tex was never. Never. Uh, yeah. Chief Blackhawk versus Ali Bay. Lord. Duke Kiyamuka versus Cowboy Bob Ellis. Holy shit. Dickie Steinborn. Versus Rito Romero. And finally, the main event for a championship I will not name, two out of three falls, 90-minute time limit. The champions, Ike Eakins and Wild Bill Longson versus Pepper Gomez and El Medico. Good Lord. Okay. We're pretty goddamn sure we're in Texas. Hugh McKenzie would later on become Tex McKenzie, but he probably was in the process of stealing the gimmick from Cowboy Bob Ellis, who was later on in the car. <laughs> you know, I didn't even put two and two together about that. You're probably right. <laughs> John Tolos had been a successful team with his brother in the 50s. And honestly, this may be before that. Um... I don't know who Chief Blackhawk was. Ali Bay could have been any number of people. Duke Kiyomoka, that was long before he went to Florida, I would imagine. Dickie Steinborn and Rito Romero is what made Rito Romero is another reason it makes me think we're in Texas. And Ike Eakins and Bill Longson against Pepper Gomez and El Medico. Here is my issue in that I would place it with Gomez in Texas, and Bob Ellis in Texas, and Rito Romero, I would place this anywhere from like 58, 59, 60, 61, but is that too late for Bill Longson? There's the twist for this one. Are you going to tell me what the twist is, or I got to figure that out too? Oh, I didn't know if you were done figuring no. out your own twists and turns over there. Oh, well, I'm twisting, and I'm twisting in the wind here, and Ike Eakins... Um, I've got to, I've got to think, I'm going to try to put this right in the middle of as late as I think that Longson would be figured in and as early as I think that uh, Hugh McKenzie wouldn't be Tex, but Bob Ellis would be Bob Ellis at that point because he was Bob Elliott in West Texas in the early 50s. Pepper Gomez also isn't goddamn as old as the hills. He didn't start till, what, mid-50s, at least in this country. 1956, fuck it. The date, Friday, August 15th, 1958. Ah! Houston, Texas, the yeah. City Auditorium, Morris Siegel promoter. 
World Tag Team title at stake for first time here. Champions ready for action. The champions being Bill Longson and Ike Higgins. Sodia, did they come in since first time ever at stake? Did they come in to put the belts on Gomez and Medico? While Bill Longson and Flat Top Ike Eakins, the tag <laughs> team top. champions of the world, are striped or stripped. What? Yes, yeah, stripped. Are stripped and ready for action in the first defense ever made of the world tag team title in the state of Texas. Not only are they ready for action, but they are confident they can whip the challengers, Pepper Gomez and El Medico, in the two out of three falls scrap. Here's a quote, allegedly, from Longson. This is duck soup for a couple real champions like Ike and me. It will be no trouble at all. I doubt if we will get a good sweat up against those fellows. Besides, they couldn't even beat Kiyomuka and Tolis last week. I saw Kiyomuka tag Tolis, and the referee wouldn't let him in the ring. This is duck soup made out of a couple of Mexicans. Well, Eakins was equally vocal <laughs> and equally certain on the result. Longson is a great partner and in great shape. He will take a fall on each of those fellows tonight, and we will win in two straight falls. I will watch him take the falls. He won't need my help for that. <laughs> then when he beats both of them, he will take the Texas title and then the world's title. A great partner. A great partner. So, so I don't know if they're coming in or what their story is. Oh, exactly. good lord! Well, and and Bill Longson, what still number four on the all-time biggest box office attraction list? Is that where we, where we had him placed last? Yeah. Well, what do you know about Ike Eakins? Because I don't know too. I know the name, but I don't know too much about him. Um, I didn't realize he was teaming up with Bill Longson in Texas in '58. I've seen pictures, and that was a little late for him, too, but I've seen pictures. I don't know there's any film out there. He used the stump puller, and at one point, I believe he may have been a Kentucky hillbilly. Well, Jim, our next card here. I was about to give you the date. That would defeat the purpose. <laughs> our next card here, the opening bout. The opening bout, I should say. Chris Adams versus Scott Hogg Irwin. Ooh. For an undetermined, uh, well, not undefined or undetermined, I know what it is. For an unlisted championship, Jake the Snake Roberts versus Buck Rock and Roll Zumhoff. Iceman King Parsons and Skip Young versus Kelly Kaniski and Buddy Roberts. Hmm. Mike, Mike Gallagher versus Gino Hernandez. Terry Gordy versus The Missing Link. And the main event, Kerry Von Erich versus Michael Hayes. Okay, we are obviously in world-class wrestling. Yes. Um, Chris Adams, Scott Irwin, Jake the Snake versus Zumhoff, Parsons and Skip Young. Kelly Kaniski and... Uh, Buddy Roberts sounded like an odd pairing, but that's just because Gordy and Hayes are involved in singles matches and there was Buddy on the card. Uh, I assume that Gallagher was just a local job guy, but that was not <laughs> Doc and Mike Gallagher of the Gallagher brothers, you know, 20 years later against Gino. So that has to be 1983, does it not? And 
Uh, hold on, hold on. It could be 1984, but I would think it would be 1983. And the question is, where in the world-class territory, the Dallas Sportatorium or Will Rogers Coliseum in Fort Worth would be obvious, so perhaps you're trying to throw me off. So I'm going to say that this was at the Joe and Harry Freeman Coliseum in San Antonio in 1983. The date, August 27th, 1984. Oh, God damn it! The Will Rogers Coliseum. All right. World-class championship. You crossed me up by making it too obvious. Looking at this card, what does this say about the amount of people they had working there or the lack of the amount of people they really... I mean, I guess you don't need a big crew, but... Well, no, this was a... Are you kidding? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, 14 fucking guys, six matches. That was a big card for Dallas at that point. I guess you're right. I didn't even think of it that way. Yeah, remember, when we got there at 85, the spot shows were four matches, and, a, and one of the singles was a captain's match out of the tag teams. That way they could have two towns running on the same night. And Sportatorium was six matches, and maybe they'd add one with job guys. No, this was about normal. All right, Jim. Well, our next one, we'll see how normal this is. The opening bout... Jack Armstrong versus Tony Rocco. The next bout, Skip Young versus Raul Mata. Hmm. The next bout, Gordon Nelson versus Cowboy Bob Ellis. <laughs> the next bout, Crusher Verdue versus Steve Kern. Ox Baker oh boy. versus Joe LaDuke. All righty. Well, we're we're definitely in Florida. We know that much, but keep going. For a tag team title that I will not name, Jack and Jerry Briscoe versus Siegfried Stanky and Hans Schroeder. For another championship I will not name. Uh, uh, Hans Schroeder, give your notice. Okay. <laughs> I remember that story. For another uh, championship I will not name, Buddy Wolf versus Ernie Ladd. And finally, in the main event, Dusty Rhodes versus Ivan Koloff. Well, we're in Florida, and it's probably the Florida tag team title and the Florida heavyweight title. Uh, um, that is correct, for the record. You are correct. That is correct. Um, it, boy, Bob Ellis threw me off, and then I realized he worked there in the late 70s. Jack Armstrong and Tony Rocco could have been anywhere. Skip Young was in Florida at that period of time, and, and Gordon Nelson was the giveaway. And then Bob Ellis confused me. First match could have made you think it was in California. Yes. Second match could have even been in California or even in Texas. Yeah. And then Crusher Verdue could have been anywhere till you got Steve Kern again. Baker and LaDuke, this is... <sighs> I am going to, it's it's the late 70s. It's either 70, 78 or 79, I believe, because of the time period that I seem to remember Ox Baker and Joe LaDuke both working there, as well as Dusty and Ivan Koloff, Ernie Ladd. I've got to say, this is a major 
Florida show in 1979, one, two, three, four, with eight matches, which means the Bayfront Center in St. Petersburg in 1979. This really isn't your day. What? Tuesday, May 3rd, 1977. Oh, God damn it. Tampa. Tampa. Fort Hesterly Armory. All right. So it was 77. Hey, I'm getting old. All right, that's the excuse you're going to run with it was It was two years and 30 miles away. I'm sorry. All right, two more. Two more and we'll wrap two things more. up. This next one, the opening bout, Billy McDaniels versus Jim Mitchell. The Black, it is indeed the Black Panther. The Black Panther. Not listed here as such. In it, a, it's, it's not the manager... <laughs> extraordinaire but rather his uh, his namesake in previous generations in a judo match and by the way was billy mcdaniels the one that was also billy blassie uh i am not I certain was. you may be I believe right. it was when they when he was teamed with fred blassie a judo match coming up a judo match chester hayes versus masa kimura Ooh, that is the kimura that is Isn't the original it? Kimura, and in fact, I didn't even know exactly how to spell it. It's just one word, Masa Kimura. Well, I think that's his. That's the way that they, they didn't know how to write Japanese people's names back then. But I think his Masanori Kimura or Masa, whatever, Masa with first name, Kimura last name. Danny Savage versus Freddie McDaniels. Okay, well. Is I that Freddie Blassie? I think that's Fred Blassie. Oh, no shit. At, at some points, it was Freddie and Bill Blassie, and at some points, I think it was Freddie and Billy McDaniel. Those are the only guys without pictures on here. In a tag team bout, Carl Davis and Ivan the Terrible versus Rito Romero and Carlos Guzman. Okay. And the main event... Is that... Uh, well, wait a minute. Hold on. Yeah. Is Carlos Guzman Blackie Guzman, or is that... He had a different first name, Blackie Guzman. Yeah, I'm uncertain about that. Okay. So I can't tell you that. All right. And finally, the main event, Wild Red Berry versus Gorgeous George. And Berry is spelled B-E-R-R-Y. Is that correct in that program? Or that did is, they spell it? That is correct. And that's why Barry Orton, Bob Orton Jr.'s brother... His name was spelled B-E-R-R-Y because he was named by Bob Orton Sr. after his good friend, Wild Red Berry. Um, okay. We've talked about the McDaniels, the Black Panther Jim Mitchell. This would have been later in his career. It is the early 50s, I believe, which is later in Jim Mitchell's career. He was the first nationally known African-American star and was born here in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, I don't know what became of Chester Hayes. It may be that Kimura put the Kimura on him and, and fucked him up. Um, There's a photo of him here. I, to be honest with you, I don't recognize the photo, but it says roughhouse Chester Hayes tackles Masa Kimura, Japanese judo champ in a special judo match tonight. Chester is a rugged fellow who has met the best. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, 
They Savage. needed an opponent for Kimura. That's what that is. What, what, what was Savage's first name? Uh, that was Danny Savage. It's Danny Savage. So that's S-A-V-I-T-C-H, right? S-A-V-I-C-H is how it is spelled C-H. here. Okay. Rather than Savage. Uh, Carl Davis and Ivan the Terrible, Rito Romero and Carlos Guzman scream Texas. And Red Berry being in the main event against Gorgeous George with George uh, probably not at his height because the his early 50s TV run has probably come to an end. Uh, Jim Mitchell being in the opening match, he's on the about ready for retirement. Kimura being in Texas would have to be after 1954, would it not, because of the genesis of Japanese wrestling in general? I can't speak to you can't speak when to he that. would be in Texas. I couldn't tell you. Red Berry, Wild Red Berry, not only a great junior heavyweight, but one of the first managers. Uh, very good promo. He's from Kansas. One of the first talkers. One of the first talkers. From Kansas, but he it's we're in Texas, and we got this has got to be it's not West Texas, it's either Houston or Dallas in nineteen again nineteen fifty five you should have went with West Texas because at least it was pointed the right direction seriously the date wednesday march fifth nineteen fifty two Oh, God damn it. The Olympic Auditorium, Los Angeles, California. Son of a bitch. Well, then, all right, that was the run where Mitchell and Gorgeous George were both in the Olympic. They had the riot in their match then. No, that was 49. Wasn't it? Yes. I don't have John Cosper's book in front of me, but it's All right, well, and I've got Jim Mitchell's book over here. All right, so Mitchell went back to California. Gorgeous George was still on top. I was three years too late, and God damn it, that Rito Romero was around longer than I thought he was. But how did Kimura get to be on a wrestling show in the Olympic Auditorium in Los Angeles in 1952 when Bobby Bruns and the Sharp Brothers, et cetera, they didn't go over till 54? Well, there's a few things here I'll, I'll note. Jim Mitchell, there's a photo of him here. Always smiling, Jim Mitchell. <laughs> <laughs> you can see the racial overtones there, but. Always smiling Jim Mitchell figures to provide a stiff test for up-and-coming Billy McDaniels on tonight's All-Star card. Win, lose, or draw, Mitchell is one of the most popular grapplers ever to show at the Olympic. That's an interesting note there. I'm trying to see the promoter, Cal Eaton, the announcer, Jules Strongbow. Carl Davis. I'm trying to see if there's anything about Kimura. There's nothing about... Nothing about Kimura. Kimura in here. How does this fucking martial arts legend show up on this event? Well, we will see. I'm just taking one last look here at the notes. The rematch of Wild Thriller. That's the uh, main event here. Nothing about Masa Kimura in here. Well, Jim, our final program here today... Maybe a little bit of a giveaway, but an interesting card considering uh, the timing of it. The opening bout, Rick McGraw versus King Kong Bundy. 
The next bout, Terry Gibbs versus Ricky Steamboat. George Wells and Bret Hart versus Nikolai Volkov and the Iron Sheik. There will be a live Piper's Pit with a special guest, Mr. T. Ah. In six-man tag team action, Big John Studd, Ken Patera, and Jesse the Body Ventura versus Andre the Giant, Jimmy Superfly Snuka, and the Junkyard Dog, and the main event for a championship I will not name, under Lumberjack Rules, Greg the Hammer Valentine, the champion, versus Tito Santana. Theater Continental title. It indeed is. And the live Piper's Pit with Mr. T makes me presume that it would be either New York or Los Angeles. And obviously the the fact that Mr. T is even involved makes me think that it is either very close before or very close after WrestleMania 1 or WrestleMania 2, which is the only time that Piper and T interacted. And... So I don't want to make this one-year mistake again, because it could be... I'm trying to think of what would disqualify it from being... Look at the rest of the card. That's what I'm doing. It's Bu Bundy's there, but Bundy was there. Bundy! <laughs> Bundy! You big fat piece of shit. But Bret Hart being involved. George Wells, holy shit. This is... Would this be a build-up for WrestleMania 2? Would this be very early in 1986? It would not. No, but wait, there's Snuka. That's what the fucking... So it would be... See, I caught that. I didn't, no. I didn't take my hand off the checker. I was asking a rhetorical question. That's not the only one. Keep looking at that match. And JYD. Nope. Well, yeah. But... Oh, oh uh, but... Um, Patera. Ventura. Well, bingo. Yeah, so it's the build-up to WrestleMania 1, 1985, and it's either Los Angeles or... Madison Square Garden, and I would think it'd be Los Angeles because MSG would probably have Hulk on top, right? I should have added. Plus, other all-star bouts featuring Barry O, Rene Goulet, David San Martino, Matt Bourne, <laughs> SD Jones, Jim the Anvil Neidhart, Rocky Johnson, and Charlie oh. Fulton. Okay, so it's a TV taping. And as a result, it could be anywhere because they would bring Mr. T to TV, but they wouldn't bring him to a house show in fucking Champaign, Illinois. Well, you got the year. You got the right time, pretty much, and that's what makes this card interesting. Sunday, March 17th, 1985, St. Patrick's Day, Madison Square Garden. Holy shit. Two weeks before WrestleMania. Put it in the same building. In the same building. Two weeks before WrestleMania, I said the big giveaways. Snooker, of course, is gone by the end of the year. Patera goes to jail yeah. right after this. 
And Ventura, how long would it be that he was... He's pretty much out of the ring. He, he starts... Yeah. He's commentating on WrestleMania two weeks later. Yeah. All righty. So that's lost to history that if unless people just make an effort to look it up that they ran madison square garden two weeks before the biggest show they'd ever run in the history of the company in madison square garden that's one of the things i always find amazing you know every now and then you see the clip but no one ever thinks about when it was from where you have the live piper's pit and piper has images of mr t that travis heckle drew up or whoever it was <laughs> that's two weeks before wrestlemania that's how hot they were in new york at that point <laughs> Now it would burn out, but at that moment, I mean, they ran Madison Square Garden two times in two weeks, and they sold out both, and one of them was the biggest gate and whatever for every record for WrestleMania. I don't know what I'm saying it, anymore. You don't know what you're saying. It was, it was a bigger gate than every wrestling show except Gallatin, Tennessee on July 13, 1979 with the Marlin Brothers against Buddy and Ken Wayne. Here on the back, real quick, we'll end with this. March 31st, 1985, 1 p.m. In yet another unprecedented commitment to excellence in professional wrestling, the World Wrestling Federation presents WrestleMania, an exclusive closed-circuit satellite broadcast on Sunday, March 31st, 1985, beginning at 1 p.m. in major arenas throughout the country. This professional wrestling extravaganza presents the top grudge matches of today's professional wrestling world. WWF promoters have signed, sealed, and delivered the matches you, the fans, want to see. Here are some of the top bouts already signed, and it lists them. And then at the bottom, once again, WrestleMania will bring you the greatest bouts of today's turbulent professional wrestling world. And it can only be viewed via closed circuit at arenas in your area. Watch any of the World Wrestling Federation's numerous top-rated television programs for the nearest viewing place in your area. Tickets are already on sale. WrestleMania, the gala event of all time in professional wrestling history. Don't miss it. Who was writing their copy? I don't know, but I, I always enjoy it when they... Somebody will tweet out a, a clip of like one of the TVs or the shows then from 1984-85 WWF, where the the audience was still normal wrestling fans, but they're looking at this fucking whatever the fuck's going on in Vince Jr.'s mind now and going, what the fuck is this? And then, you know, three years later, you look at the crowd, it's completely different people. They're going crazy, but there's none of the same fucking people that were there five years ago. They've run them all off. And they've managed to trade... Selling out all those buildings in the Northeast, they ran all those people off and got a whole new group of people that would sell out the buildings for a little while. Yeah, fans of the Garden used to stick out their tongues at the wrestlers. You don't see that anymore. Yeah, not a lot of tongue stickers anymore. I don't know if there's a helicopter or what the hell's happening behind me. I don't even know if our great production team here is going to make it so you don't hear that. But Jim, I got more bad news for you. We need to return tomorrow and talk about AEW Dynamite. Well, we certainly do. So, because that's the only missing piece of this puzzle left. So, we're going to take a, a break now, and then we're going to come back tomorrow and let you know what happened when Dynamite met Collision. Well, they're not going to meet. Well, they're going to meet in the ratings war, and Collision is up at 816. Let's see what Dynamite's got to say about it. <laughs> 
All right, well, we'll be back shortly with that. You won't even know we were gone. I don't even know why I had to say anything. I don't really know why. the we. It's not like we leave. And the only thing we're going to do is stop talking about all this stuff to go watch more of it and come back here and talk about it again. Tally-ho. Well, we are here. We are back. A day later, a dollar short, hours of sleep short. I don't know what you want to say. Poached. Jim, how you doing today? Well, we watched another wrestling program. Good God. Was it worth it? <laughs> Was this all worth it? From, you know, from the penthouse to the outhouse has never been more apropos after we watched Collision on Saturday night and then go back to the same level of muck where we're wallowing in muck, indie muck, amateur muck, and Meyer. muck of all descriptions. The muck has run amuck. All because of the Bucks and their other dumb fucks. But we'll have some luck because we will skip some of this muck. All right. I thought I could run. The Hardys and the Guns. And we've talked about This is Dynamite. By the way, this is this is Dynamite. <laughs> yeah, it sure is. <laughs> 621 on your calendar, June 21st, the summer solstice. Everybody's brains were baked. The Hardys and the Guns, we've explained the folly of what they did with, they reunited one of the most popular tag teams of all time and gave it away on free television in a meaningless match. And then sometimes they're around and sometimes they're not. We mentioned they could have had a cohesive strategy. I would have done something to Matt Hardy to make him not only a raving baby face, but in an injured, sympathetic position looking for revenge to bring Jeff Hardy back as a surprise. Boom, 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 to clear the ring and lead to a pay-per-view match because the first time that you would see the Hardys together in this, given all the conditions what prevail, would probably be even the most popular, or the most profitable one. The big reunion. In a grudge match on pay-per-view where the people got to pay it, pay to see it. And then possibly about a month or six weeks down the road, you've maneuvered them into a huge match on free television for the ratings. And then if you were very careful, they would earn their money if you had them work in some fashion back and forth between pay-per-view and television six or eight times in the year but you would get descending returns because <sighs> look at the condition of them in term. And it's not, that's not like, you know, an insult. Look at what they've done to their bodies. Can't do that shit anymore. And I actually thought this was the best they've looked in a while this match. Well, I don't, then I'm glad I haven't seen what Jeff did last because what I saw was him just jumping up in the air and landing wherever the fuck he lands and the other guy's supposed to catch him and break his fall or fucking cushion Jeff's fall somehow with the expense of his own body. But anyway, they could have made something out of this. The Hardys are icons. Now, what they did was they, without 
giving them their due as legends and having a couple of big matches that really got noticed and you could have hid some of the weaknesses and people have been happy to see them. Now they've just been here and been here. And now they want to get somebody over with using Matt and Jeff to do it, the guns, young team. But they don't do... They don't... The guns don't beat the Hardys. The interference from the two other fucking guys do. So you've just negated the Hardys doing a shocking job for this young team of the future to set up an eight-man tag team match that didn't doesn't involve either one of them. That was the most interesting thing because, again, I thought the match, because I've seen some of their recent stuff, I was ready to shit on it. It wasn't as bad as some of the other stuff I saw. It was a hot crowd, and the guns were doing everything they could to move around. So I wasn't going to kill the match, but then I was like, oh no, they're going to do something, I guess, with Ricky Starks and the Hardys and someone, but then the Hardys just vanished and they were gone. And it was almost like they weren't even there to begin with. (laughs) Well, and, and also, and I understand what you're saying about how it was one of the better Hardy matches, but unfortunately with my eagle eye and a discerning mind for this it was because the guns were bumping like human super balls for the guns were literally working around jeff to a big extent being immobile and matt to some extent being immobile and all the action and movement whether offense or defense was the gun boys in large part and except at one point matt it made a big comeback and gave one of the guns a twist of fate and the gun sold it like a stunner. I, I don't know where that, but, but anyway, the point is that they, they created a situation where the green guys were having to, to carry the veterans. And yes, there, there's been the bruiser and crusher effect for many years in wrestling where the opponents had to carry the icons, but the opponents were usually Bockwinkle and Stevens for Bruiser Crusher, or they also experienced, or the Horseman for Nikita, or whatever it may be. And so it didn't do the Gun Boys too many favors to do this, to get this win when they had to do all the work, and then the Gin and Juice come down, and they're the ones that beat the fucking Hardys, basically. And then Gin and Juice come back and get heat on Matt and Jeff, too. And then here comes Ricky Starks, and the heels stop him. And then here comes FTR, and they get a big pop. And they have a big brawl, but the heels are still up. And then suddenly, here comes, and I love the staggered run-ins. No so, music. And no music for the run-ins, because it's a sense of urgency. They're trying to save somebody. And you got the pops. And the people are going fucking batshit. So th- this part, yes, as soon as they got Matt and Jeff out of there, they, they, you know, business picked up. But it's just, it's been a mishandling, unfortunately, of the Hardys reunion. But anyway, Punk clears the ring, gets the microphone, makes the challenge for the eight-man on collision. And, and, and so we will see Gin and Juice and the Guns against FTR, Starks, and Punk. And, uh, boy, I hope the third episode of Collision is not a 10-man tag team match, but at least we got some hope here. So the That is the third episode. 
Oh, like, for God's sake. They said we're gonna we want to have the match next week, not this week, next week. Or Nick. Well, that is next. All no, right, now how do you look at this? This is an uphill or downhill situation. Next week would be next Saturday to me. Rather than <laughs> Okay. Not a week and a not a show and a half from now. I think right? I think if it was gonna be on this weekend show, it would be we'll wrestle you this weekend. We'll wrestle you this Saturday. Not we'll wrestle you next Saturday. Well, the, this Saturday is the next Saturday that we have. No, it's the, it's the Saturday that's coming up. No, it's not the only one. There'll be more. It's the this is the next it's one. It's the very next one, but usually the phrase is used for the week after. Well, you don't have to put the qualifier very in because just the next Saturday that we have as a, as a, as a humanity here, as a race of people on this big blue marble, the next Saturday we have is next Saturday. When they announced the matches on Dynamite later in the show for Collision, the only I remember they announced uh, Brody King versus Andrade, continuing the Andrade House of Black feud, but I don't think they announced the Punk match. Well, I'm goddamn confused then, or maybe they are, or maybe they they confused me. See, that's the way it became, but we're going to have an eight-man coming up. It's what we're going to do. A lot of multi-man matches, but at least it gets Punk and FTR on the screen they produced last week. So You know what? That's the thing. They had that six-man match, and they gave it time, and it was great, and it was different, and it was paced well, and it was exciting. And if you're going to have Ricky Starks as one of the top baby faces on Collision as well... He gets a good rub. Gets a good rub from that. Once again, to me, Juice Robinson stood out in this thing. Just his screaming, just everything about the fucking guy. Jay White looked good. It's weird to say this. They're trying to elevate the guns. These guys were the tag team champions. It's easy to forget that. But they're trying to elevate the guns by having them involved with all these guys. And the guns have looked good in there, I have to say. Oh, they they did a a masterful job of bumping and feeding and falling and etc etc but uh they're, they're they're animated they're so animated but anyway so basically punk made that challenge for whenever it may be on newfoundland time or whatever and then he called for his music like Mussolini, he saved the day and the hardys had completely disappeared gone away see gone you could have made it rhyme you could have worked it well, I, you you see, you scold me about singing so much. Now I'm frightened. And by the way, wonderful shot, um, pretty much all night, but especially in this match of this big bulbous head across from the hard camera. The the sign being held up. It looked familiar. As a matter of fact, it for those of you who might not realize it, you can purchase the official Cornet Face T-shirt at jimcornette.com, available in sizes small to 5X for our portly friends. And you can have that right on your chest, just like that guy had the big sign. My head's not that big, though. But I'm looking down over everything. That was a gigantic sign. It was pretty A gigantic big. head. Yes it, yes, it was. It hit well during that Jericho match. <laughs> well, we ain't there yet. We got to go to the concession stand brawl between Jeff Jarrett and Mark Briscoe. And again, what 
trying to critique a performance in this is like trying to fucking critique the wrestling skill in a Saturday Night Live sketch. It's a parody of wrestling. It Jeff Jarrett knows why the Tupelo concession stand brawl that they mentioned without any context, or probably the, I don't even know if Sockface has ever seen it on YouTube. It didn't happen in Japan. But Jeff knows why the first one worked, why that subsequent redos didn't, because it had been done, because the talent that did it the first time did it the best and was the biggest, Lawler and Dundee. The, the, he knows the context that it was presented and why it drew, why the it didn't draw money, but the angle that it was drew money in rematches. It was not advertised as such, obviously. And this was a complete just Tony Khan slash basement mark slash modern silliness fan wet dream. And again, Mark Briscoe could have been one of the hottest single baby faces in the company and in the main event world title picture. Jeff Jarrett at this point could could still probably serve as a better local live event promoter than whoever the fuck they've got going to Hamilton, Ontario six times a month. Um, Papa Briscoe is a gimmick that can get over with context in certain circumstances, but this is just meaningless horseshit. And they were actually working hard. Mark's out there taking those bumps at his, again, after the career he's had taking meaningless bumps in a meaningless match that people are laughing at just because the, the commentators Khan are and the announcers are laughing at everybody just because Tony Khan has the understanding of wrestling and its psychology of a child and he has the TV formatting ability of a simpleton and he's if not on various medications causing this, then needs to be on some medications to stop this. Hi. So, anyway, you know, all the things that Tony Khan has been handed to him, given to him from the start of his life, tens of millions of dollars from his father, so that his dad can seem spend some of his inheritance and have fun five hours of national TV a week on TBS and TNT that hated and didn't want a wrestling company with three times the fucking viewers selling 10 times the fucking tickets that this one is, except at Wembley Stadium. Stuff nobody else could get because everybody else had to try to figure out a way to make the money back and justify spending the money to someone that would have had to give them the money. And there was no way to do that. Tony didn't have to. He could just do this. And he's, again, fucked it up by eliminating his chances for growth to any level approaching the WWE's just because this is indie-style bullshit that appeals to a small segment of the world, and that segment ain't going to get any bigger. Because the more you see of this shit, the more you realize it all looks the fucking same. And nobody gives a shit about the people doing it. 
except the people that live their lives on the fucking internet and dream of one day booking in their basement like Tony does. God damn it. <sighs> so anyway, about 10 or 12 extra people ran in on this. It started at the concession stand and ended up in the ring in another <laughs> complete, what is it, 180 degree or 360 degree fucking whatever of from the original. It started at the concession stand, at the hot dog stand, and ended in the ring. 10 or 12 people ran in, and everybody just, the best friends were involved. Did you hear the referee's instructions, I guess they are, at the start of the match? Yes, yes. They're trying to make it sound like they were fighting Mike Tyson while they're out there fucking shooting ketchup at each other. He said, are you ready? Are you ready, ladies? Are you ready to the women behind? Why were oh, those yes. women even there? Other than to set up the Karen thing, obviously. But what? Well, they, they were there to cheer and serve hot dogs. What was that? It's stupid. It's a child. It's a child's view of pro wrestling. And he's literally putting his action figures in the goddamn ring from Walmart, except it's not from, it's the size of Walmart. Now he's renting NBA arenas to put his fucking Titan Tron in his ring in. So his action figures can have concession stand brawls to fuck. You don't get the party with action figures. <sighs> so now would you like to move on to Jericho? Sure. This was another match that they presented us, folks. Chris Jericho and Sammy Guevara and Minoru Suzuki against Darius Martin, A.R. Fox, and Action Andretti. Yes, he still lives. And of the plethora of six-man tag team matches that we have seen lately from both companies, I knew this was not going to be the best <laughs> right off the bat. But however... And again, Brian, before we get into why I don't know what the fuck this has to do with any other program they've been working here, and we'll talk about why, but yes, Minoru Suzuki is an MMA legend and a tough guy and a pro wrestling legend in Japan. As a baseball fan, Brian, if... Mickey Mantle was still alive today. How old would he be? Oh, geez. He would probably have to be close to 90, I would think. Would you want to see him play any ba any baseball at this point, or would you like to just see him wave at a fan fest and get his autograph? Yeah, that's pretty much what you would want to see. At Old Timer's Day, you don't want to see someone go out there who was an all-time great and embarrass themselves. You just want to see them and remember them on the field. Okay, so for those people who know, which, again, is it even the complete AEW television audience that knows that Minoru Suzuki is a legend in Japan and an MMA blah, blah, blah? I know the announcer, Sockface, tries to tell people, but since you really don't listen to him and you don't believe anything else he says because he's full of shit as a Christmas turkey anyway, does anybody believe that? To look at this guy. And look at the state of him now on American television without knowing who he is. Would people not laugh at what is in front of them? He looks ridiculous. He sells nothing. His shit looks phony. And everybody's flying for him. 
even though he looks like he just got paroled from a rest home. Am I overstating this? If you don't know who this fucking guy is. No, if this if this version of Minoru Suzuki is your first exposure to him and you don't know anything about him, I could see you wondering how is this the toughest guy that they're making him out to be. Okay. So Very easily was... I could see you thinking that because if you don't know his reputation or who he is, he's not an impressive looking wrestler. So you're just going purely based on reputation. And they all have to treat him so carefully because nobody wants to be the guy to either piss him off or hurt him. Right? Out of respect and fear. So it's just... But the whole deal was, remember Sammy Guevara has been... They've been trying to turn him babyface. They've been trying to make him a sympathetic figure. They've been trying to get him to, to if, get the people to support the four pillars business and in jericho told him off last week and so well maybe we need to get the goddamn sex gods back together so i can show you who's boss which i don't know how as we mentioned how teaming with a guy would <laughs> show him who was boss i don't understand that but there's an issue between jericho and guevara so after this match which by the way jericho won his team won. He won with the walls of Jericho on who's he, what's he? I don't care. Then Renee Moxley Good gets in the ring and asks Jericho a question. And one of her typically inane, you know, what are you feeling about this or whatever? And Jericho just takes her microphone and walks off from her and she just turns around and leaves. Thank you, Pat Summerall. He always used to just hand the players the microphone and just fucking walk off. Google it, kids. And then Jericho cuts a promo on Sting. And what they did, and Darby, and he's pissed at them. And then he challenges them for a six-man tag team match at the pay-per-view on Sunday, Forbidden Door, while Sammy's standing around in the fucking corner of the ring, listening to all that. Well, then Sting's music plays. And here comes Sting and Darby, and Sting gets up in Jericho's face, tell him, tells him off, and accepts for both of them. And then Darby actually gets to say, when we have a third man too, and I don't think that we know who the fuck that is, but the point is, how was this supposed to further anything between Jericho and Sammy, which is how we, we started here, when... Sammy did fuck all of nothing. Did he? This was the weirdest follow-up to everything that happened last week, which was the first thing in a while that left you a little bit intrigued about whatever Jericho was doing. It was all out the window. It was all about <laughs> Suzuki and setting up the six-man tag at Forbidden Door. Maybe next week we'll go back to the Sammy Jericho stuff. This is just a week off. I was waiting for something. You know, I was waiting for him to clock Jericho accidentally. Something. Yes, any miscommunication or combobulation or whatever. But no. Um, so we might have to remind me. Let's talk about for, forbidden behind the green door after we get finished with this stuff. Because I don't know how many fucking matches there's going to be on this thing. Oof. And I don't even know if they know yet. They're still announcing them. How many multi-man matches on this thing? Well, how many people is he paying every week? He's got to, you know. So, and and by the way, there's a big tag team tournament, folks, coming up. 
to determine, from what I understand, the number one contender, the tag team titles, but the names for the teams, because they can't fucking get any teams over, even the ones they've got right under them. So they're going to draw the names of people and they team up at random. And it will, be, you know, it could be enemies or it could be friends or whatever the case. Could be lesbian nuns. We don't know who's going to be in this thing. And they signed the nuns. Well, kayfabe. Yes, there is a thing. And what do they call it? The incredible pairs. They do it in Mexico where they have a show themed around drawing names and, and enemies have to team up. And it's a nice little concept. And you, they, I don't think they do it to determine a team to challenge for the tag team title. And I don't think they do it at the expense of their world heavyweight champion or everything else they got good. But we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. But Tony and our friend RJ City drew the names out of the bingo roller for the tag team tournament. They drew two names and didn't tell them. And RJ City didn't speak at all, except at the end, uh, he said, like, thanks, guys. So that was that segment. I had just told you that I had become such a fan of RJ City, they should find a way to incorporate him on the show in, you know, small doses, no more than two and a half minutes at the very most. Well, this wasn't more than two and a half. This was about 10 seconds. And he, he, he spun a, a fucking hamster <laughs> cage and said, thanks, guy. He said nothing. I mean, his face told the story. He was making as yeah. much as many different face uh, faces, I guess you should say, as he could. But uh, yeah, that's that. What do you think about them doing this, but then not even exposing? You're just showing that you're rolling the balls. You don't even see who the names well, are. Yeah, well, they couldn't say now because they had to wait to say at the appropriate moment later that if it was a shoot, they would have no idea was going to be happening. See, that's why. <laughs> All right, so then they did a pre-tape in the back stairway somewhere, hopefully at a local detention center, with the buckaroos and hangnail page and old twinkle toes because they couldn't appear live on their own show, the show that a couple of these pricks are EVPs of because they would get booed out of Chicago like fucking a, a, a goddamn crooked mayor. They they had to, to literally put themselves on a pre-tape that the people wouldn't see and then have later on have their stooge announce that uh, they had left the building. They weren't, they wasn't even there because they knew what the reaction would be in Chicago land. But it was more gaga about the BBC, and they want a five-on-five -five match for the pay for the pay-per-view. A five-on-five -five match with goddamn supposed main event guys is being still talked about Wednesday night at nine fucking o'clock Eastern for a pay-per-view on Sunday. Could it be that they know that they've shit the bed with all these other off-brand matches with people we couldn't pick out of a fucking lineup? Well, you can do a lot of last-minute stuff when you know that the matchmaker never goes to sleep. And has an endless checkbook. Let's just put 20 more guys on the card. So this was emotionless and passionless, as you would expect from these gutless individuals, until Eddie Kingston walks in 
Once again, looking like the Stay Puffed Marshmallow Man if he had gone to reform school. Oh, stop it. And he agreed to team up with him. What's the matter? Hey, those those first couple of prison tattoos almost popped his arms. Anyway, he agreed to team up with him, even though he doesn't like him, as long as he gets to pick the fifth team member. So that's what we got out of that. And that seemed like a good bargain to the Bucks. Sounds like a good deal to me. So right at the nine o'clock hour, we have the in-ring promo with Adam Cole about his match with MJF. He didn't win, but MJF didn't either. And basically calls out MJF. They got to have MJF coming coming to the ring at nine o'clock or they're basically they're lost balls in high weeds. So MJF comes out and I know he's trying. I'm about over him and Adam Cole already. Thank you. That's exactly how I feel. Cause the, the, the finish was disappointing. The, I don't think anybody thinks Adam's going to win and he shouldn't. But anyway, the crowd was chanting, shut the fuck up and they make no attempt. USA is over there bleeping 30 seconds at a time so a stray shit doesn't come out. And TBS or TNT just, ah, ah, fuck, it's okay. Five fucks, that's all right. So MJF, of course, says there'll be no rematch with Adam Cole because he's concerned with Adam's health. He's, you know, took such a beating. But that's when Tony Schiavone stands up and has an announcement to make. He drew the tag team tournament names. And by God, the first two he drew were MJF and Adam Cole. Well, wouldn't you know who won the pony? They've got to team up. (sighs) The world heavyweight champion in a blind draw tag team tournament to determine who might challenge the world tag team champions. Did they decide, well, fuck you, WWE. We can fuck up our title logic even worse than you can, hold our championship belt. So then a a blonde Japanese guy shows up on the screen that after his pre-tape was over, well, after his pre-tape was over, they said, yeah, that's Tanahashi. Go to the mall and show his picture. See what, what happens. As Howard Baum once put it, the Joy Behar hairdo is the giveaway. So anyway, after that, where Tanahashi's, I guess, daring, he's addressing MJF with subtitles. Cole says that MJF's a coward. He won't face Tanahashi. So MJF does the same thing he did with the match with Adam and said, loses his temper and says, I'll fight him. I'll fight him. Okay, great. And then Adam Cole walks off laughing at him because he suckered him again. What the fuck is going on here? And does anybody want to see MJF risk getting hurt to wrestle fucking Professor Toru Tanahashi? Well, who knows? Maybe it's a match MJF won. Tanahashi is a legend of New Japan of the modern era. I think, from what I know of MJF, he would want a match with J.P. Morgan because he's a (laughs) fucking legend of Wall Street. All right, well... I don't think MJF is a mark that wants to fucking wrestle Japanese legends that are eight years older than he is or whatever. Here's the problem. It feels like MJF's running in place right now. Even though they have this new thing with him and Cole... 
it just feels like sameness in some sense, but it also nothing, nothing has heat. These guys wrestled last week and they were out there just in the ring talking to each other, right next to each other. I don't know. I mean, there's too much of that, I think, going on now where it's everyone's comfortable in kayfabe. Everyone's comfortable standing there just talking to each other. Yeah. As opponents, as enemies. And then it leads to this. Now we get to see them as a tag team, I guess, whatever they're going to do to set up the next thing, the next chapter. And that is the awkward, incredible pair of MJF and Adam Cole. They, I, I feel like they got to yeah. do something really different with MJF now uh, or new with MJF. The Adam Cole thing isn't doing. And I someone new. Yeah, I feel bad. You know, it's the other thing, too. And I'll say it. They showed the highlights of the match from last week. And I'm sorry. He's just it, it looks ridiculous unless he's going to be a heel and you use his physique in that way and he somehow gets away with stuff, he cheats like a heel. It looks ridiculous watching him in there with MJF. When he pulls his knee pad down to do his knee, you just see how scrawny his fucking legs are. I'm afraid the lack of support from that knee pad would cause his legs to break off in half. So, so yeah, I'm not feeling this, and they got to do something different with MJF, and I don't know what you do with Adam Cole. I think he's best used as a heel, but that may not be how they see him best used. Well, that... That horse is well down the fucking road at this point. Anyway, speaking of down the road, we save some time next because I swear to God to y'all people out there listening, watching, y'all people, the cult of Cornette, 22 solid minutes from the start of the entrances to the last outshot of this buggy-whipped-armed fucking loser. Pockets and Shibata, the man with no brain... No, they put it back. Ah, they put it back. Okay. The man with a new brain... No, it's the same brain. Same brain. The man with the same brain... (laughs) versus Danny Garcia and a giant Q-tip. Sabre Jr. Yes. They're at Q Saber Jr. Pockets and Shibata versus Garcia and Q Saber Jr. So anybody that might give the new guys a chance, well, we can say, okay, the guy looks like a big Q-tip, but we haven't seen him. So, and Shibata looks like, well, another random Japanese guy that we've never seen before. There's a bunch of them on the program, but. He's new, we'll give him a chance, but no, he's involved with pockets, so this is obviously all a joke. So 22 minutes of national television time, almost as long as the 30-minute draw between MJF and Adam Cole, is what they gave to these people. And I, you know, th- you know, I feel like this, we don't know what the ratings are yet. I feel like this could be one of those weeks where we get surprised. It's just like, what the fuck happened? How? Because otherwise I would say, how could this match not be one of the lowest rated segments ever? Even if you like these people, Sabre Jr.'s never been on this show. Shibata has never been on the show. Excalibur didn't even talk about his brain removal. Oh yeah, no, yes he did. Yes he did. Oh, did he? Okay, he did during the entrance because when Shibata came out, I was wondering if anybody would say that his brain was removed. 
But no, he told the story of the injury, but he did not talk about the brain removal. You see, I'd lead with that. And then I skipped it. The Brainiac. I would even call him the Brainiac. I would build <laughs> into it. But then Garcia and, you know, they've tried to elevate Garcia. Now he has a Jimmy Del Rey dancing thing he does. I don't know when that started. <laughs> but this went so long. I was shocked how long this went. Especially for this time. Like, not at the end of the show when you know people are going to kind of start losing interest. Not on Rampage. No, it started 10 minutes after the top yeah. of the 9 o'clock hour. Like 9.08. Yeah. 20, 22 minutes later. Yeah, I, again, we may be surprised by the ratings just because of the way things work. And if you didn't see Punk at the start of the show, and you know he was on Saturday, you may tune in at 9 o'clock to see I, him. I, I don't I, know. I, I mean, you know... Because <laughs> otherwise, because I mean, the other option is, how could anyone want to see this match? That's what I'm saying to you. We don't have the ratings, by the way, folks. No, we were in the no. dark about this because this is... It just happened last night. We're still in the morning. But we'll update that whenever we can. Anyway, the the main event match. Oh, you was, missed the BCC interview earlier. Um, No, I didn't. Oh. I saw it, and they were standing there, and I just kept going. Takeshi looked good. Well, if he'll stand on his own without the other fucks in the way, I'll look at him. So the main event uh, match of the program was the TBS title with Chris Statlander against Taya Valkyrie. And it didn't really come together. They spent most of the first part of the match slapping each other's tits. Why did the girls want to chop? Because I would think that would be uncomfortable and, and you're either literally slapping somebody's tits or you're hitting them in the collarbone. I worry about Chris Statlander because she tried to backflip off the apron into a reverse DDT Ooh. while Taya was standing on the floor and missed her and landed with her knees crumpled up underneath her. That landing scared the shit out of me. I mean, she was wearing thick braces, but still the way yeah, she but, landed. Uh, she's had two major knee surgeries and Taya's working real hard, but it ain't happening here. I don't know what the fuck. And Stadlander hit a superplex and a tombstone, which was impressive as hell. One, two, three, but that much weight on your knees over and over. You've had two knees, sir. I would suggest find a, an acceptable alternate finish that does not destroy your knees over time. Any other comments? I can't on add that? too much to it. It wasn't the greatest. I, have limited exposure to Taya Valkyrie before AEW. And she's, in my opinion, never looked worse than since she's come here to this place. Yeah. I mean, no, she looks like a million dollars, but wrestling-wise, it is not happening. I like Statlander. I worry about what she's doing, and they're getting hurt again. I mean, the way she landed on that thing on the floor, you're not doing it justice because you can't. You have to actually see it. When you say she crumpled up with her legs underneath yeah. her. Yeah. It did not look good for someone with a repaired knee, a recently repaired knee, let alone two surgically repaired knees. But other than that, she's got size. The people are as into her as AEW fans get with women wrestlers there because, you know, I hate to say it, the crowd always gets quieter during these matches. The sign language thing is pretty cool. That's something good to use. Yeah. But, you know, you need people to wrestle. 
And uh, like I said, I'm sorry. I've never seen Ty Valkyrie much before here, maybe briefly in NXT, but I've not really been. I guess you worked with Jade and Statlander's coming off an injury, but I'm not making excuses yeah. for someone I've never seen before. So I don't know. Yeah, yeah. And and with Statlander, and they they were torn ACLs. And I've had those injuries in both my knees, like she did hers. And and I know people are going, well, she's much more of an athlete than you are. Well, no shit, Sherlock. But at the same time, I've not only had those injuries and know what they feel like and know what the repair feels like, but I've talked extensively to doctors about those, not only because of mine, but because of being involved with the developmental program and guys blowing their knees and having to interact with them in the office and a blah, blah, blah. And I'm just suggesting don't do backflips off the apron, landing on your feet on the floor, and probably save the tombstone for a special occasion, and it'll serve you better over the long run. That's what I'm saying. Anywho, you ready for the real main event, Brian? Yeah. <laughs> so, Eddie, after this show, God bless America. Eddie Kingston comes to the ring and he puts a shirt on because he mentions he's just had surgery and he ate a bunch of ice cream. I think, I think he, <laughs> see, that's great. I'm sorry. That's why I, the fans like him. Yeah, he is. He's just a big slob and they do like him, but goddamn, <laughs> I don't know if ice cream could do that. I think again, it looks like somebody shoved a helium tank tube up his ass and Fucking blew him up. He's ready to fucking float in the Macy's parade. Well, he's not that big. And, you know, if you go through a few Ben and Jerry's, I could do it. Well, I've been through a few Ben and Jerry's. I'm still keeping my girlish figure. It took you a while to get to your girlish figure. It took me a while to uncover the girl down there. <laughs> the girl inside of you. It took you a yeah. while to fight. Oh, I rolled over and son of a bitch. <laughs> took six weeks for him to find her. Anyway, that's where he said the Buckaroos and Kenny had left because he told him he didn't respect them. And the crowd minorly booed the mention of the EVPs. And, but Eddie doesn't like the Bucks and he can't stand Claudio. And here comes Moxley, now with no music. So now it's it's a they've taken the taken the criticism to heart and now everybody's doing it. But also probably because they were running out of time. He didn't have time to play half a wild thing because they were almost off the air it is interesting though because again everyone else who had no music ran out from the back moxley still just walked out from wherever he comes yeah, from he's he's still out there in the parking lot you know <laughs> huffing fucking paint thinner or whatever but <laughs> anyway so kingston yells at moxley for well moxley first said something about either you stand by if you stand behind me, I'll protect you. If you stand beside me, I'll respect you. And if you stand in front of me, I'll destroy you. He didn't mention what would happen if he fucking leapfrogged him. See, now that's that's <laughs> that's how I'd win the match. Now I'm going to leapfrog that motherfucker. He's got no defense. But anyway, then Eddie yells at Moxley for teaming with a scumbag like Claudia. Claudio's the nicest guy in this whole fucking equation. And uh, they have a big face-off, and then suddenly Kingston blurts out, Ah, oh, hell with it. The fifth man is... He actually said that like he was... Ah, oh, hell, the fifth man is Stone Cold Steve Austin. So 
suddenly he says that, and from the entranceway, out walks a Japanese baked potato with arms and legs. Oh, come on. And waddles down the rampway at the exact same time Useless and Danielson and Claudio have hit the ring and jumped Kingston. But the potato hits the ring to try to help Eddie. The plumber, Moxley, rolls out of the ring and just leaves, and you never see him again while his guys are fighting. Danielson gets the microphone while the other guys beat up Eddie Kingston and the potato, and he yells for Okada. But wait, now Kingston has disappeared, and the potato is laying in the ring, and here comes, apparently, it's Okada. We would know that because that's who came out when he was called. And now, when he gets to the ring, everybody is gone except Danielson and Okada. They get in the ring and stare at each other. And then suddenly, Wheeler Useless jumps Okada from behind, and starts getting some heat on him. The others are still gone. Danielson goes for the knee, but Okada moves and he hits Wheeler. And then Danielson ducks Okada's clothesline and slides out of the ring, so Okada gives useless the clothesline, and then everybody leaves. Where do these people disappear? Is there a teleportation machine? that they have perfected in wrestling now, that people just vanish when they're in the middle of a life-or-death struggle, a fight, a Donnybrook, a Pier Sixer, a Hey Rube, and suddenly, they're gone. What do you think is worse, fighting off or vanishing? I think vanishing is worse. At least fighting off, we know it's fake, but they tell us where they went. And and, uh, one more thing, the clothesline from Okada. Seriously? Are there not 17 clotheslines that are more impressive delivered on almost every wrestling program these days because the guys get turned ass over tea kettle upside down? You're turning me. I'm giving you a clothesline so frequently. Upside down, you're turning me. Uh uh-uh. uh. It's all over. And this guy, he holds the guy's arm, he pulls him into it. He gives him short clothesline, the guy fall down, go boom. That's it. It doesn't look as death-defying as everybody else's fucking moves on this program. So it, now they've not left the Japanese legend anything to get over with. See, that's part of the problem with the whole buildup and everything with this. I think his lariat, his clothesline, short-arm clothesline looks good. This may not have been the best example of it, but even if you like it and you saw it here, you know, it's like the Steve Austin stomp theory that you always talk about. Except the problem is he's not over with everyone here like he is in Japan. Correct. So if you haven't seen it before, again, like, you know, we're talking about the reputation of Minoru Suzuki earlier. If you're not terribly familiar with Okada, you may not get that. But if you are, you may be losing your mind. Well. There's a lot more people that ain't getting it than those that are losing their minds. Anyway, so how many matches are on this fucking show so far? We've still got three days to go. And when will we find out what everything is? And how long (laughs) is this goddamn show going to be? 
I can't imagine they're going to add more matches. It's 11 matches as of right now. What? As of this moment. So basically, Tony, this is Tony's pet show because even though it destroys all of his booking continuity for everything else he's doing, and even though half the people on this show are people that nobody knows who the fuck they are and they're almost never, if ever, on this television program, he loves it because it's Japanese wrestling, so he's going to give everything he possibly can to force this thing down people's throats to make it a success instead of focusing on his continuing domestic business and his big show coming up in Wembley Stadium. Not to say this makes it any better, you know, for the way you laid it out, but I also think he sees this as relationship building between him and New Japan. We heard that that Nick Khan tried to make a deal with New Japan, whatever it was, a year and a half ago, two years ago. And that's right around the time that Tony got more aggressive with his uh, relationship with New Japan. Well, you know what? Here's the thing. Ten years ago, New Japan was dying to work with Ring of Honor. But old Greg, the office boy, didn't want to goddamn pay for any paperwork or plane tickets from Japan. They want their guys to be on TV in America. It's not a hard sell. That's been the tradition for 60 years since Baba and Noki. So it's not like that they have to book the entire company on this fucking pay-per-view in order to keep a relationship going with the number two fucking company in the United States when they know they can manipulate them and trust them more than the big boys because the WWE doesn't really give a shit about New Japan in the overall scheme of things. That's right. Well, I have the card here. I'll give it to you real quick. We'll do a preview of this. As well as I, <laughs> I'll tell you about this qu- other quote someone just sent me in a moment. For the pre-show, so you can take this one off your list maybe. Thank you. As part of the Women's Owen Hart Cup Tournament, first round, Athena versus Billy Starks. Well, at Billy Starks, she's, uh, that's the, she's the one from my hometown here, Louisville, little 18-year-old girl, right? Oh, I didn't know she was from Louisville. I didn't know that. I believe that's the one. Oh, wow. And uh, they did a news piece on her when she graduated here not long ago. Well, hopefully Athena won't fucking potato her in the face or jump up in the air and land that big, wide, broad ass right on top of her like she does everybody else. Well, you can find out on the pre-show. Also on the main card, as of now, Adam Cole... Versus Tom Lawler. Filthy Tom Lawler? Yes. What the, where the fuck did this come from? Well, he wrestles for New Japan. Well, God, has his, na- has his face been shown on television? As his, he can speak English. They've got, they're having <laughs> promos from these goddamn miscellaneous fucking New Japan guys that they're doing English subtitles on. Tom Lawler, last time I spoke to him, had a fairly good grasp of English. He can do promos. He's a goddamn MMA name. He's, what the fuck? They haven't even fucking shown his picture, have they? I have not seen anything with him on AEW. What the fuck are you? Oh, God damn it. Jesus Christ. One guy that, uh, the American audience that's not already fucking grabbing their crotch over Japanese wrestling might get a, a, a tickle by seeing this guy or hearing about him or being introduced to him and being interested or whatever, that he's a goddamn secret. But Ishii is running in on television. Go ahead. The next match, 
for the AEW Women's World Championship, the champion Tony Storm versus Willow Nightingale. Well, there you go. Is that the pre-show? No, that's part of the main show. Oh, goddammit. Well, we can shorten the match a little bit, or shorten the night a little bit. Well, from there, we have a four-way match for the AEW International Championship. Of course we do. Orange Cassidy, the champion, versus Zack Sabre Jr., versus Shibata, versus Daniel Garcia. Okay, I'm watching Storm and Willow. <laughs> okay, well, now we figured out how to get you to watch the women's matches. Put an Orange Cassidy match after it. Jim, in the men's Owen Hart Cup tournament first-round matchup, CM Punk versus Kojima. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Should Punk be on this pay-per-view in your own? Well, but now hold on. Because I saw on Twitter, now I've just realized, I don't know who the fuck Kojima is unless it's the one that Baba had working for him in the early 70s. But I saw something on Twitter, now that you've mentioned this match today, this morning, it, from the people in the tournament first round bracketing, and I don't know whether they add people later or change things, but it looks like the Owen Hart tournament may come down to CM Punk and Samoa Joe to me. And if that's the case, then I don't care if Punk wrestles Howie the mailroom guy in the first round on this show. In a 10-man tag team bout. Oh, for fucks. The Blackpool Combat Club of John Moxley, Wheeler Yuta, and Claudio Castagnoli, along with Takeshita and Umino versus Eddie and Wait, Kingston. wait, wait, what? What? And Umino. Oh, he's another guy they announced when I was skipping that pre-tape. Yeah, Moxley very dramatically announced him. So his 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 their last partner's name is Humina. Umino. Humina Humina? Umino Umino. Well, just Umino, just one Umino. Just one Humina. One. Umino. Humina. And Umino versus Eddie Kingston, Tomohiro Ishii, and the elite of Hangman Adam Page and the Young Bucks, Matt and Nick Jackson. Wow, so they're going to be in the same building with CM Punk? What do you think of that? Well, can I watch Storm and Willow twice? <laughs> Maybe. You know, th this is going to be an unprofessional fucking fiasco all the way around, and I'm pretty sure that it's going to look phony as well. So for the sake of making fun of them, we might have to watch that. And oh, and by the way, the question you asked, of course, of course they're going to have to be in the same building, you fucking idiots. So get out of your goddamn treehouse. Tell your lawyers that you'll handle your business like men. Go in the backyard, dig up your balls, stick them back in the crotch of your pants, and go over and speak to CM Punk. Instead of telling, oh, tell him, lawyer, lawyer, tell him don't try to call me. It gives me anxiety. I'll have to take some medication. Maybe you shouldn't have stormed his dressing room. I don't know. Well, let's go to our next match here. You know what they say, storm around and find out. Well, you can watch a storm match only so many times, Jim. Here's another one you may want to see. Les Suzuki Gods of Chris Jericho, Sammy Guevara, and Minoru Suzuki versus Sting, Darby Allen, and a wrestler to be announced. Well, I guess we got to watch some of these, don't we? 
Uh, we'll see what Darby manages to do there. For the AEW World Heavyweight Championship, the champion MJF versus Hiroshi Tanahashi. Shh. Is that, it? that could be really good. Well, but here's the thing. Does Tanahashi know how to work like an American babyface, or are they just going to, is MJF going to try to do Japanese moves? The whole reason to watch MJF's work is because he's the only goddamn heel that actually knows how to work like a heel, wants to work like a heel, and he needs to have a personal issue in his matches to better add context, and you need to be rooting for the guy as a sympathetic that he's beaten up and taken advantage of as a sympathetic underdog, not some fucking guy that you have never met or never going to meet and don't understand what he's fucking saying. You're reading it on the screen. Otherwise than that, I hope he doesn't get hurt. For the IWGP World Heavyweight Championship, the champion Sonata versus Jungle Boy Jack Perry with Hook. Oh, Jesus Christ. Um, Did you see what Sonata said to the press in Tokyo about this? I honestly, I don't know if I know who the fuck Sonata is. IWGP champion Sonata. Here's what he said to Tokyo Sports. Maybe some slight translation issues, but here's the quote. I have no knowledge of Jack Perry. <laughs> it's sad to see someone like that challenge for the IWGP. Oh my God. Is an open challenge really that easy to decide? It's the IWGP. I think it's worth more than the AEW Championship. Wow! <laughs> okay, well, now I'm a fan of Sonatas. I'm going to tune in and see if he fucking stretches Jungle Boy and puts a ham sandwich on his back and starves him to death. I have no knowledge of Jack Perry. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll see Look, what happens here. I'm check mark by Sonata's name. He just got over with me. In a... Dream match, Brian Danielson versus Kazushka Okada. Okay, if we need to see a Japanese-style classic, if we need to, then this would be the one, right? Because Danielson knows how to do that stuff, and Okada's their best guy. So we could have this on the card, and then the rest of the matches could make sense, but we'll watch that. And finally, for the IWGP United States Heavyweight Championship... Oh, wait a minute now. The World Heavyweight title of the IWGP ought to be bigger than the U.S. title. Well, I'm not sure if this is the order of matches, but I do actually think this match may be bigger. Well, I have a feeling Jungle Boy ain't going on last, but go ahead. The champion Kenny Omega versus Will Ospreay. Rematch Os from the Tokyo oh, Dome. Oh, God. All right, so... What I'll try to do is I'll watch everything but Danielson and Okada, and then I'll watch that last so that I don't have a completely rotten opinion about New Japan and all of its talent. Because you know Twinkle Toes and Ostrich are going to do every goddamn swan dive and canterbury knee and video game maneuver and cartwheel into the round off into the handspring into the fucking aggressive parkour and combative tumbling and if that's the last match i may not be able to resist the temptation to just say fuck this well there it is aew new japan pro wrestling forbidden door from toronto ontario canada 
That looks like a long night. You know what? I've got an outstanding warrant for me. I may just go out in public and cause a disturbance where somebody will pick me up and check my papers on Sunday. They don't have pay-per-view in jail, do they? Uh, I don't believe so. I didn't know you had papers. Well, they're going to check my identification. They're going to run me and they're going to take me in and hold me for at least 48 hours so I'll be safe. All right. Well, I guess that means society will be safe as well. Uh, Jim, before we go, hey, one uh, last thing that's happening in the news. What do you think of Elon Musk challenging Mark Zuckerberg to a cage match? Or you a know, cage I, fight, I should say. I've, I've heard, I don't really know as much about Elon Musk as I guess I should, because I know that everybody hates him and thinks he's an asshole and a goof, but I don't, I haven't had time to delve into the specifics why he's an asshole and a goof. And Zuckerberg, we know, is a fucking pasty-faced dweeb that looks like he would be sitting at the table with the buckaroos over a a fucking pizza or whatever, talking about their matches in Rosita. So what is the goddamn beef between the two of them? And, and, and are we pulling for a double knockout and no winner? Or what's the outcome that we're looking for you know i'm not sure i think the beef in this case and who knows what the bigger beef may be but facebook is trying to launch a competitor to twitter which of course oh that's all we need which of course was bought by elon musk last year for a ridiculous amount of money that it wasn't worth and then is he he's supposed to not be a right-wing republican idiot but then he's taking up for the right-wing republican idiots right well, he says he's just an absolute free speech person, although there are people who question that. Well, then that means that he's taking up for people just telling blatant bullshit lies out of their ass. You got the right to do that, too. Not if it affects fucking national security and or people's fucking lives and safety. Now, you're not on Such face- as fire in a crowded theater. You're not on Facebook, so you couldn't really comment, but... Well, I am technically on Facebook with the official Cult of Cornet Facebook group, but I just don't get on there yet myself because I still don't know how it works. And I'm waiting for you to get everybody in the thing before I find out. That's when you're going to show up, once everyone is there? Once everybody's in there, then I'll come in. When does the main event make an entrance before the people have taken their seats? At Forbidden Door. No, I don't well, know. I, I don't know. But that one time, my question is, you are not very familiar with the interface of Facebook. You have been using Twitter for a while on your computer. How would you compare Twitter today to Twitter a year and a half, two years ago? Is it better or worse? Well, it's all bullshit. It's never worked right for me, to be quite honest with you. And now I've get a bunch more advertisements. And every once in a while, it says, oh, we can't load this or just hours at a time will be skipped over on the, the when I'm scrolling down the timeline there. But most people on there are still as stupid as they were. No, no better, no worse. I, I, all of the people that I blocked remain blocked. I'm going for the record there. All right. Well, and Zuckerberg, we know studies BJJ or now has started competing in BJJ. He looks like he's studied a BJ or two, but I wouldn't really care if fucking Twitter goddamn caught fire tomorrow, to be quite honest with you, except it's fun for sharing little video clips and or snide comments about the Republicans. But this Facebook thing, now, would that cause the end of civilization if Facebook caught on fire and ceased to exist? 
Because no. everybody's on that now these days, right? Well, I wouldn't say everyone's on that. In fact, I would say primarily the younger people are not getting on that. The younger people are doing different things, as I've learned from my Are kids. they back to doing blotter acid and things that young people used to do? No, those are the good old days, my friend. And those days are long gone. But no final thoughts. Who would win between Elon versus Zuckerberg? I'm, I'm going for the double knockout. Well, let's just you and me hit the ring and kick the shit out of both of them. Well, how do we get involved in this? Well, somebody's got to do it. You're dragging me along. How did you? Nobody you got, likes you, either one of these two fucking pinheads, do they? But that gives them nothing but reason to sue us for hitting the ring unannounced and beating the shit out of them. No, not if we these do it in AEW. If we do it in an AEW ring, then everything's legal. So we can just fucking kill them, bury them under the goddamn overpass, go on with our lives. The world will be happier. If we can only get Rick Knox, we could do that. Well, I don't know the way that that fucking, uh, what's his name? Bryce, Bryce Grifter, Bryce Rimsburg. <laughs> he, he, invis he, he refereed the invisible man match. So certainly he can referee something like this. All right. Yeah. Well I'm never going to let him forget that either. I talked to that guy one time, like a normal human being. And he go in the wrestling business, accepted him in the locker room. And he goes out and referees the invisible man. Fuck you. All right, well, that this has been uh, Elon versus Zuckerberg, an expert Yeah, commentary. Bryce Rimsburg will be the referee, and we'll kick him in the fucking face, too. All right, well, with that, the drive-through is... is Fuck the drive you, Rimsburg, you no-good son of a bitch. This has been Jim Cornette's drive-through. We're closing things up. Jim, let's get one song before we get out of here. Okay, let's sing one. What do you want to sing? How oh, about no. a, a chorus of old Dan Tucker? Well, get out of the way for old Dan Tucker. He's too late to have his supper. Supper's over and dinner's cooking. Old Dan Tucker just stands there looking. Well, there's your song, ladies and gentlemen. And with that, where's my musical instrument? Someone moved all my stuff. You sound like Tony Khan now. Somebody moved your action figures. Maybe it's a different kind of stuff he's talking about. Of course, we'll be back next week. Songs will return. Questions will return. There's been a lot going on. We are actually getting our schedule in order, and there's a lot of big things happening behind the scenes. The next few months are going to be exciting. Boy, have we tuned. got a story in a week or two to tell all y'all. Oh, boy. I cannot wait for this one. But stay tuned, and of course, we will return on the Jim Cornette Experience this coming Monday, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Go through the archives, patreon.com slash Cornette. For $5, you get access to the archive going back to the beginning in 2013 patreon.com slash cornet the official jim cornet youtube channel just go to youtube and search for jim cornet it'll come right up full episodes clips of episodes omnibus collections all with the very popular travis heckle artwork check it out today the official jim cornet youtube channel and don't forget classic jim cornet content on the arcadian vanguard youtube channel go there check out classic clips from the old episodes as well as the Wrestling News and many other Arcadian Vanguard shows, the Arcadian Vanguard YouTube channel. You can follow Jim on Twitter at the Jim Cornette. You can follow me on Twitter at Great Brian Last. You can hear me on the 605 Super Podcast at 605pod.com or available wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Don't forget about the Wrestling News every day wherever you find your favorite podcasts or directly from the WrestlingNews.com, your daily free wrestling newscast. The Wrestling News. Coronet's Collectibles at jimcornet.com. What's going on, Jim? 
Lots of stuff on sale, and Daddy said bye. At JimCornette.com. Of course, the drive-thru is brought to you by the law office of Stephen P. New, 888-692-8084. Get even with Stephen at NewLawOffice.com. But until Monday on The Experience, and next week right back here on The Drive-Thru, for Jim Cornette, I'm the great Brian Last. Tell ya! Well, it's Jim Cornette's drive-thru. Yes, it's Jim Cornette's drive-thru. Please shut up and listen while Corny is shooting. Yes, while Corny is shooting on Big Fucking Putin and those outlaw macho fucks. Joey Ryan, the young bucks, the rednecks and dumb fucks, and them dork order bum fucks. And then there's Jelly Janella and Santino Marella, the boogeyman, the boogeyman, the boogeyman. Corny's drive through. Corny's drive through. Corny's drive through. Well, it's all elite wrestling. Tony Khan is investing his millions of dollars in some dumb cosplay wrestlers. Yeah, they think they are wrestlers in video games just like Kenny Omega. To the pro wrestling for which he stands. No blow up dolls, kick spots, or dance routines with blood, sellouts, and shoot angles for all. And have you heard about Riho? She weighs 45 kilos and she's their champion. She's a Japanese schoolgirl. All the Japanese schoolgirls like Kenny Omega love to play with his Sega. Yeah, they play with his Sega. You need to sue the guy for you, Steven Pedro, everybody. Corny's drive-thru. Corny's drive-thru. Corny's drive-thru. Corny's drive-thru. And now, here are your hosts, Jim Cornette and the great Brian Lass.